Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so you're invited to come think with me. This is a podcast of conversations, not interviews. People always say, let's do it in this interview. It's a conversation because it's more like a podcast than just a one, two, three, four, five, here are all the steps in someone's argument. Now, I want to I want to have pushback. I want to have a genuine conversation. So I am going to nitpick about that. This These are these are conversations in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. Today's episode is really, really special. Uh, I have with me again, Dr. Joshua Sijuade, and we're going to be talking about theistic modal realism. It's wild. There's so much to cover. I'm so excited to get into it. Uh, we're going to be talking about David Lewis. We're going to be talking about uh, classical theism, neoclassical theism, all sorts of good stuff. So so stay tuned. It's going to be fantastic. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon. If you like this podcast, if it's your favorite, if it's your top five, top ten, please consider supporting the podcast. I would love to do this full time. I'd love to start traveling. Got some sweet equipment to do in-person interviews, conversations, not interviews. I'm the worst. Uh, so you guys can make that happen. And many of you already are making that happen. So if you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can find the link in the description. And then another way to support me, pretty excited about this one too, is uh, to check out our sponsor, <clears throat> uh, Biblios uh, Clothing Company. So if uh, if you look in the description, wherever you're getting this, whether on YouTube or um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever, you can find a link to biblioscloathing.com. And you can get a 10% discount on all their clothes. If you type in, let, let me see. This is my first time trying it, so I'm stumbling through here, guys. Biblioscloathing.com slash discount slash Parker. And it's all caps, Parker. And so you can get a sweet shirt like this one that I'm wearing right now. It's awesome. It's uh, about the Great Commission, you know, Matthew 28, 18. And it's got math, Matthew in Greek. It's amazing. Matthew toys. <clears throat> um, it's fantastic. So go check out biblioscloathing.com, um, Biblios Clothing Company, and it's uh, biblioscloathing.com. You can check that out. You can find awesome clothes for men and women. Uh, they are coming up with even more new designs. The designs are fantastic, but check them out. And if you use the link that is in my description, let them know that I sent you. You'll get 10% off, and it makes me look good. So if you want to support the podcast, become a Patreon, Patreon supporter, a patron. Or go to biblioscloathing.com slash discount slash Parker. Find both those links in the description. That would be huge. All right. Um, before uh, before we jump in, I just want to say Joshua Sijuade is is the man. This dude is awesome. We were talking a little bit off offline about his study habits. And a lot of his study habits match up with mine. So anyone give me crap about my study habits, you know, take it up with him. But this is going to be really like cutting-edge conversation. Um so think hard and follow the arguments. Don't do any reductionistic, this is just that, or this is just that. It's tough and it's tricky and it is like cutting, you know, bleeding edge stuff. So here we go. Let's, let's jump in. <clears throat> Josh, man, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, Parker, thank you very much. I'm really happy to be back. Thank you. 
Yeah, dude. So um, you you first sent me this this paper um, because I was talking about David Lewis and modal realism, and you said you know I had a paper on that, and no surprise there because you have a paper on on everything. <laughs> <laughs> so you just pull out and I got a paper on that, um, which is fantastic, and I love that. But we first like I, I first wanted to talk to you about modal theistic modal real, realism. That is um, in modal realism, uh, a la. Um, David Lewis, there's all these concrete worlds. And, you know, I wanted to see how planning a, and his ontological argument stack up against those. But then I read your paper, and the paper is The Metaphysics of Theism, a Classical and Neoclassical Synthesis. And it's just so, so, so fascinating. So we got to talk about that as well. Um, how did you first, like, that's kind of a bold statement, man. Like, you're synthesizing these two, you know, disparate yeah. views. How did you first even come to want to do that? Yeah, so I... Um, so this was sort of in my, just my research for other things. So i sort of the way I, my research projects have gone is I've just stumbled onto issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was researching something else, I just then realized, oh, that's very interesting. This can be utilized in this context. And then I've done that. And then I've it's sort of led on to something else. And so I was researching this I must have been on the Trinity or something related to that. Um, and I started just being interested generally in the idea of modal realism um, and modality and sort of the the metaphysics of modality and understanding what these things are. Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, abstract objects or are they concrete objects? And and I just really was interested in David Lewis's idea, specifically because of how influential he's been in contemporary philosophy. Yeah. Um, and so I just felt, okay, given his influence, um, let me actually go and read his stuff and let me try and see what he's he's saying. And then just going a little bit deeper into his work, I, I realized that some of the things he's saying can be utilized in the context of this classical, neoclassical theism debate. Because I, sort of prior to sort of going into the research in Lewis and, and other things related to that, I was intuitively in a place of thinking that I felt there was a false dichotomy here in mm. that you either a classical theist or you're either a neoclassical theist, but you yeah. can't be both. Um, and I mean, most people would say, what, what the hell are you talking about? Be both. Uh, <laughs> right. They seem to be contradictory, but I just felt like there is a way to bring these things together. And my sort of idea was, and as we sort of walk through the paper of saying, I think it's not helpful having these two camps. I think we just all can go under the, the umbrella of being a theist, someone who believes in God, mm-hmm. um, But then there are ways for us to say God is in a classical way. And there's also a way for us to say God is a neoclassical way without saying that these things come, you know, they come, they are the be it and end all of what God is. And so I just felt that there was an intuitive understanding of how to bring these things together. And then when I started looking to Lewis's work and and sort of this idea of modal realism and specifically ontological pluralism, which we might be able to cover in, in some Somewhere. Yeah, I hope so, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I felt that there was a way for us to square the circle and bring these two things together. Um, so it's like the way that I was saying to you in my research, I have an idea of something, and I, that moment in time, I might not have the solution. But then when I'm reading something else, so I park that over and I say, let me go and read something else, maybe deal with another issue I wanted to deal with. And then I stumble upon the philosophy of something that I'm like, Oh my gosh, that actually fits perfectly with the prior issue um, that I left over there. And so that's sort of how it worked with this. But I just felt for a few years that there was a way to sort of bring these together in a coherent package. 
And I felt sort of Lewis and his metaphysics and, and things related to that allow us to sort of do that. Yeah. Well, and so I think one cool thing, there's a lot of cool things about you, and we talked about that before. Well, one, one of the cool things about you is um, you're kind of like, uh, you know, a David Lewis in that you're, you're, a, you're a world builder. You, <laughs> you want to you have, have a systematic picture of the world. And I think for some people, it's like, dude, how does this guy keep coming out with so many papers? But this is something you've been thinking about for a while. And so yeah. it has all these different implications. So you, we talk about like monarchical Trinitarianism yeah. before. Yes. And people are like, well, this dude's a, a Unitarian. It's like, <laughs> well, no, he actually holds to like a, a social model of the Trinity. Yeah. So it's it, it, exactly diametrically opposed. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and but then you're like, yeah, but I want to hold the simplicity. And you're like, yeah. Well, how do you do that? And you're like, well, we gotta we gotta have different existential qual- uh, quantifiers then, and yeah. and so it's just cool how yeah. you've got this picture, and I don't think we've seen the full thing uh, mm-hmm. yet, yeah. um, but but maybe when you come out with your your ST man, like it'll be this yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> but we keep getting these pictures yeah. into your yes. into your project, and it's a yeah. it's an awesome project, man. Yeah, thanks very much, thank you. Yeah, so I'm I'm sort of trying to within a year, two years, bring this together in sort of a monograph. Okay. Um, just how to, because I've got in my head, like how to, I'm trying to systematically bring things together. Um, and yes, I'm hoping some point in time I can I can put that in some mono, monograph, which I'm sort of trying to write, yeah. um, which can just sort of make it seem like it's actually fits together um, in some sort of neat package. But I think this systematic sort of thinking is just because I'm, I'm hooked on Swinburne. So yeah. Swinburne is like, for me, the guy who who's really sort of, done that at a really good level just being able to paint a picture of how you know we can get the we can take the best philosophy out there and we don't have to be scared of philosophy as some people are in in sort of a theological circle we can take the best philosophy we can utilize the tools and techniques of this and bring it together to form a systematic whole which fits with the christian worldview and that's sort of the 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 path i'm trying to follow in some ways stumbling along Hmm. um but yeah that's sort of what i'm trying to do yeah well so um I always assume that people have seen the last episode and stuff and, and many probably haven't. So can you just say a, a bit about yourself? So are, yes. are you firstly a, a theologian? Are you a philosophical theologian, analytic theologian? Are you a yeah. philosopher? Like what, how, how do you think of yourself in that way? Yeah. So I think um, I, I would go more with the, yeah, the philosopher of religion sort of thing. Okay. So philosopher of religion, philosophical theologian. Um, I think it's more when you have that sort of two terms, philosophical theologian, I think I emphasize more the philosophical aspect than the theological aspect. Um, But I mean, I I would say that qualifying it, saying that my philosophy is always guided by the underlying theology that I that I affirm and I hold to. Um, But I think I'm, I'm very that sort of philosophy first guy. So again, going back to Swinburne, it's that same sort of attitude of let's sort of sort out the philosophy aspect right. and then we try our best to make sense of that within the theological worldview um, that we were affirming. But I think, yeah, it's more, I, I would affirm, I, I would, sorry, I'll, I'll probably assent more to the philosopher tag than the theo- theological tag um, in that I do need to improve my biblical right. theology. I think that, that will help, that will help me. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So no one ever says they're a theological philosopher. I don't even know what that would really uh, entail, but maybe I'll, I'll go with that yeah. route and I'll say, I'm the first yeah. theological philosopher. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, dude. So in jumping into this paper, I want to set things yes. off. Um, you have, um, you have classical theism and you have neoclassical theism. Yeah. Uh, classical theism is um, pretty easy. I think for, for most people to understand it's the classic doctrines. 
Uh, the Omnis, God is omnicompetent, plus uh, simplicity, immutability. Um, what else am I missing? Uh, so, yeah, in, so you have simplicity, impossibility, immutability, and like timelessness. So I think yeah, yeah, timelessness. the yeah. package you sort of get, yeah. Yeah, so then, um, so neoclassical theism is one that people aren't going to know as much, but it's yeah. just like the converse of that or inverse, yeah, whatever, yeah. converse. Can you just lay out, um, yeah. Yeah, what, yeah. What, yeah, so it's sort of, yeah, just the, the polar opposite sort of attributes. So, yeah, we classical theists and neoclassical theists, they affirm theism in that you can see that sort of in their name. So they affirm that there is a God who, exactly as you were saying, is perfect, has all the omni characteristics, and he's basically the, the fundamental entity. He is the He's at the rock bottom of reality. That's what God is. And then you have these sort of extended attributes that they ascribe to God. So the classical attributes and package would be as exactly as you said, simplicity, impassibility, immutability, and timelessness. And then neoclassical theism, which is sort of this sort of newer movement um there there is sort of historical sort of grounding for it some theologians would say but it's just taking the opposite opposite of those four attributes so i don't think they'll use a term instead of simplicity saying that god is complex i don't think they'll use that term <laughs> yeah but I think do, but yeah yeah i mean they would they would say it's simple but they will affirm some form of complexity so i just say yeah. God is complex. Sometimes um, they do it to trigger the the uh, classical guys. Like, no, God's yes, complex. Yeah. You're like, dude, yes, stop. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's say complexity. So God is complex. He's temporal. He's um, mutable and he's passable. But that would be, I mean, you'll qualify those terms. So when we say God is complex, who, when someone's a neoclassical theist, they would affirm some form of simplicity, but it will be a weaker form of simplicity. Mm-hmm. So normally that would be that, they would ascribe uh, attributes to God, but those attributes would be properties. So God instantiates or he exemplifies certain sets of properties. Mm-hmm. Um, and the relation, so as I was just saying, the relation between God and his properties is one of instantiation or exemplification. It's not numerical identity. Mm-hmm. So someone who affirms simplicity would say God is his power, his knowledge, his goodness. Someone who affirms God being complex, a neoclassical theist, would say that God exemplifies these things. He's yeah. not those things. So, yeah, so he has um, properties, um, but then also he's temporal. Um, so I sort of go with with Ryan Mullins's sort of way of interpre- uh, interpreting this. So things like God doesn't have temporal extension. Sorry, mm-hmm. God has temporal extension. Uh, he has some form of temporal location, and he, he sort of endures through time. Um, So there is a way of basically saying that God is everlastingly enduring through time. Someone who affirms timelessness would say that God is not, not going through time in that sort of way. Um, And then you have mutability, um, but the mutability would be saying that God is able to change um, in uh, let's say extrinsically. So God can experience some form of extrinsic change. Um, he might be able to also have some form of intrinsic change, but mm-hmm. they will always affirm that he doesn't change in his essential attributes, given that they are essential. Like so moral essential perfection, like he's yeah, not exactly, going from yeah. morally perfect to morally imperfect. Yeah, yeah. so he yeah. wouldn't change in any of his essential properties. So he's mutable, he's changeable in some sense, but he's unchangeable in another sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and then passable would be something like he's been he's able to be causally affected. So... Um, that will normally entail that he he can he has or he 
he can experience some emotional states. Yeah. So God can experience anger or, or you know, wrath or, or happiness or, or all those sort of emotional states. So it's basically just trying to say that God um, has, he's perfect, but he, in a way he's, he's I, 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 the way Swinburne would go, because I think he's sort of the paradigm example sure. of someone who's affirming a neoclassical view would be, um, you know, God is a maximal or perfect person. I mean, even though neoclassical theists would say they don't hold to the term, let's say, theistic personalism, sure. which they'll see sort of as a derogative term. Yeah. Um, but they, yeah, I think they would affirm the idea that God is a person, but all of the attributes that he has are limitless. And so what we understand of personhood for us, God exemplifies that, but he would have them without any limitations. Right. And then obviously a classical theist would not hold to that view. They will disaffirm that given his simplicity, his timelessness, his immutability and his impassibility. Yeah. yeah. So they seem to be polar opposites. That's what we sort of have with these conceptions. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, one, one thing just for the neoclassical, the neoclassical theists, when they are looking to do, looking to affirm a weaker form of simplicity, you point out that often you'll, you'll go to essential attributes like om, omnipotence, and then derive the the rest of the omnis or the rest of the uh, properties from that. I thought that's yeah. a that's a pretty good move. I like that. Yeah, move. yeah, yeah. It's it's a really really good. And I think that's sort of the main person again who does that is Swinburne. So mm-hmm. Swinburne used to in his earlier works he would derive all of the other attributes from God being omnipotent, Him being omniscient and him being perfectly free so from those three attributes you then get perfect goodness you then get everlastingness you then get some form of necessity so all of the attributes stem from that but then in his most recent edition of the coherence of theism which came out in 2016 he basically reduced that to just the the property of omnipotence so he believes you can get all of the attributes of god from god just exemplifying the one attributes of omnipotence and so he believes that so they would say maybe um, the way, in, instead of simplicity being importance, it's unity. Yes. So God is the most unified being, specifically because he exemplifies only one property, which then entails all the other properties. So they all fit together in sort of a harmonious whole. Yeah. And, and yeah, and um, it's pretty fun to think like, well, how can you get, well, how does omniscience, how is that entailed by um, um, omnipotence? Yeah. It's like, well, if God is all powerful, then he'd have to know about all this stuff and you can do it. And, and Swinburne does it cause he's a, yeah. a genius. And then you just yeah. go, look, the divine nature is unified and each person of the Trinity, you know, um, has the divine nature in some sense. Right. So then there's, there's your kind of uh, unity in Trinity. Yes. Yeah. Which is fun. Um, yeah. Coherence of theism. That's, that's a, that's like a must read, but it's also like a tough read, <laughs> which, yeah, is, which is it wild. Is, yeah. um, it's not, it's not bedtime. Re- oh, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> If you need a good sleep phase. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. But it is good. It's, it's, it's awesome work. Yeah. yeah. So um, so you, you have this dilemma, which um, it can be motivated or not motivated, depending on your, your tradition and stuff like that. But you call it the, the theism dilemma. And yeah. so it's, you know, these if you're a traditional, a traditionalist uh, holding, a den- if you're from a denomination, a Christian denomination, like, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Presbyterian, maybe Reformed Baptist, you've got the 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 great tradition, and then you've got, you know, scripture. And yeah. the the neoclassical guys go to scripture and says, look, dude, it looks like God can change his mind. It looks like God is more personal than yeah. the classical guys want. But then you have the, the tradition, and you're saying, like, well, the tradition is classical theism. And yeah, maybe you can try and uh, find wiggle room in one way or the other, but apparently 
these two look contradictory. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, you want to fill out the theism dilemma any more than that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was basically trying to, in the paper, um, I was trying to emphasize a dilemma, which I believe is sort of playing in my mind saying, well, because I, I, I'm Roman Catholic myself. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of caught in this dilemma because I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm convert to Roman Catholicism. Um, so I, I've got all of the Protestant sort of thoughts and all those sort of things and, <laughs> and background. And so you have a high view of scripture. Um, as also Roman Catholics do, but you have a real high view of scripture as a, as a Protestant, as sort of, let's say, the sole authority. Um, and so your theology is determined by by what it says in scripture. And so scripture, according to loads of scholars on, on the matter, paints a picture which seems to fit with the neoclassical view of God. Mm -hmm. God seems to be one who's in time in the way that we are in time, but he's everlastingly existing through time. God seems to be someone who goes, you know, through certain emotional states. And so he seems to be passable in, in, a, in a certain way. Um, he seems to be uh, mutable in some sort and sense because he changes in certain ways. Maybe he changes his mind or he changes his emotional states. Um, and so scripture seems to paint a picture of God that fits very well with the neoclassical view. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't seem to fit well with the classical view. Now, you will have some classical theists who will interpret certain passages in certain ways, um, but that would be always within a certain philosophical framework, mm -hmm. and you know some sort of lens will have to be placed over to have that interpretation. But if we were just to go with our, let's say, best hermeneutical strategies and, and exegetical strategies, most scholars will say, mm -hmm. well, it's it seems to be that we fit. it fits very well with the neoclassical view. Right. So people like John Peckham of done great work in sort of showing that sort of idea that neoclassical view seems to be the view that we find in scripture but then again as, as if you're a traditionalist someone who's a roman catholic or eastern orthodox you want to affirm the authority of scripture you want to affirm what scripture tells us about god but then we also have another form of authority which is tradition mm -hmm. and tradition is quite clear on the matter un until quite recently had a classical view of god and so if you let's say have certain doctors of the church who play a part in informing some form of tradition. So you have Augustine, you have Aquinas, you have, you know, and some, you know, the three A's. The yeah, 18, right. well, yeah, yeah, you have all of them. And they seem to be people who are affirming a classical view of God, a God who's timeless, a God who's impassable and immutable and simple. And so if we are affirming tradition, which a traditionalist would want to do and would have to do, it seems to me that we have another concept of God that we have to affirm. And so it seems like we're pulled in two directions, one neoclassical view that we find in the authority that's given to us by scripture and one classical view, which is given uh, sort of given to us by the authority that we find in, in tradition. And so there seems to be a dilemma. Um, I have to have both of these um, sort of sources of authority. I have to affirm both of them, but I don't seem to be able to do that without falling into a contradiction given the, concepts of God that we find in each of these sources. And so the dilemma is there for someone who affirms both sources of authority. Yeah. But if you're someone who doesn't and just, let's say, just says scripture, and we don't need tradition, then you don't have the dilemma. Right. Um, but a lot of people will want to affirm tradition in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And there, yeah, there's, there's different ways out, but yeah, yeah. apparently it's, it's country. And, and I wanted to mention that, you know, ref, even reformed Baptists, uh, yeah have this problem um presbyterians and anglicans if you're reading turretin if you're reading bavink avink whatever um like you're gonna have these problems as well so it's not just roman catholics not just eastern or eastern orthodox it's not like 
well, that's their problem. Like, no, this is a this is a problem for for all of us who want to be historical yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Then, so it, yeah. yeah, it's anyone who wants to affirm tradition and the authority of these things. And and I think a lot of confessional sort of Protestants and, and reformed individuals would want to in some form. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, it seems to be a, a lot of people are caught in this dilemma. But I would qualify, as you were saying, there are ways out of this, and obviously right. loads totally. of people will. But let's say we want to take this at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to be like you have this dilemma, um, yeah. and is there a way out? And that's sort of what I'm trying to investigate. Well, and, and Josh, what I'm what I'm pumped about is um, so someone like James Anderson would uh, might go with the um, warranted mystery. Uh, Oliver Crisp would do this as well. And they might go the epistemological route and say, yeah. I don't think this is a real contradiction, but it could be for us because we're limited and, and finite. And so they go the epistemological route, which is yes. cool. I like that. They've both been on to talk about that. But you're going the metaphysical route and you're saying, yes. here's here's how we're explaining why it's not a contradiction. Yes. And it gets pretty wild, dude. I'm really excited <laughs> to keep going in. It's pretty wild. But just yeah. be- before we do that, you brought up uh, Ryan Mullins, uh, yeah. Creation objection to help motivate uh, uh, further. Yeah. Um, do, do you want to lay that out for us? If not, yeah, I got yeah, the premises. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, Ryan in in great um, a great chapter in the yeah what actually it's left my mind, but but uh, the handbook on analytic theology might mm-hmm. be the TNT one. Um, yeah. But yeah, so in the, in this article, he sort of laid out this issue, um, and he was saying that there seems to be good reason to be a neoclassical theist given this, what I've, what sort of termed the creation objection. So it's the idea that, um, you know, God, we want to affirm that God is a creator of all reality. Um, we want to affirm that he's the one who brought into existence everything that exists mm-hmm. um, or everything that has the ability to be brought into existence. God has to be the source of that. Um, but the problem that you have as a classical theist is that if God is the creator of let's say, contingent reality, then it seems to be the case that God has to bear a relation to contingent reality. But if God bears a relation to contingent reality, and that, that's just to emphasize the point, God, God um, at one point wasn't bearing this relation, and then he began to bear this relation. And so if God then began to bear a relation to the reality that he brought into existence, it seems to be the case that you have to drop some of the attributes of God, let's say, for example, his immutability. Mm-hmm. Um, because God at one point was without creation and then another point was with creation, you seem to be in sort of a, you have a problem because God then entered into a relation with creation mm-hmm. the moment that he brought into existence. But classical theists want to affirm the idea that God doesn't bear any real relation to creation. Mm-hmm. Now, Real relation doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't have any form of relation to to creation. But the the relation that we want to affirm is not one in which God is causally affected in any way or God can change in his states in any way. And so what you have is a classical theist is affirming that God doesn't bear any real relation to creation and God doesn't begin to be related to anything. But what we seem to be wanting to affirm is that God is the creator of everything. And so if mm-hmm. God is the creator of everything, it seems to be the case that he did begin to be related to creation at one point in time and that he bears a real relation to creation. Right. And so we seem to be, again, caught in this sort of dilemma. We affirm the creative sort of sovereignty of God. Then we can't really hold to a classical theist view that says God is immutable. 
Um, and so they seem to, there seems to be a tension here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this one. Uh, and I think Ryan and I, Ryan and I have talked about this one as well um, on the podcast. So go back and, and, and check those ones out. I think probably did God invent time. I think we talked about it in that one, but yeah, it's, um, and Jordan Stefaniak just came on to talk about God's relation to the world and how a, a classical might classical theist might uh, affirm that. And then like, you know, Joe Schmidt come on and, and destroy all that. And so this is a, this is a real problem. It's a real, it's a live option. There, there are yeah. live options, but again, like taking this at face value, it seems really difficult. And then now we're going to get into the metaphysics and yes. it's wild. So everyone strap in. So uh, Josh, you say, that we can get out of these two dilemmas and whatever else you can multiply dilemmas. Uh, and I'm sure Joe Schmidt is doing that as we speak, but you can get out of this uh, through ontological pluralism and modal realism. Yeah. And it's wild. So let's, let's talk about ontological plur pluralism first. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So ontological pluralism is a, a very interesting view. Um, and it's a, I mean, a lot of philosophers who've worked on the matter have said there is historical precedent to the view, but it's something that fell out of favor uh, really until Chris McDaniel's paper. So Chris McDaniel, big philosopher working at the moment at, no at Notre Dame, or Notre Dame, how do you pronounce it? Um, yeah, we say Dame over here. We're American. Dame, American yeah, swine. sorry, Dame. Swine. I've got to pronounce things better. So <laughs> no Notre Dame. So yeah, so he's working there, and he wrote a paper in 2009 called, um, if I'm correct, Ways of Being. And so he tried to sort of reintroduce this idea that there are different ways of existing. So normally we assume what's called um, an ontological monist view, the idea that there's only one way of being. Whatever exists, exists in the same way. So mm -hmm. the, the table in front of me, myself, a dog, a cat, and even numbers, if they exist, they all exist in the same way. Um, but then Chris McDaniel and another individual called Jason Turner, they tried to sort of reinvigorate this idea that we have multiple ways of existing. And so things that fall into different ontological categories have different ways of existing. Mm -hmm. So the way to sort of start understanding that is through normally the example that's brought up are abstract objects and concrete objects. So it's difficult to define those terms, but generally, for examples, we can sort of understand it. So abstract objects like numbers and concrete objects like tables, these things exist in different ways. And so why they exist in different ways is because they fall into these different categories. Numbers fall into the category of abstractor and tables fall into the category of um, concreter. And so because they fall into these different ontological categories, they are part of different ontological structures. Mm -hmm. So reality is structured, but it's not structured in the same way. Things that fall into different categories fall into different structures of reality. And so because these things exist in different categories and structures, they all exist in different ways. Yeah. So they have one way of being. So numbers have an abstract way of existing. And um, concrete objects like tables exist in a concrete way of existing, a concrete way of being. And so a way of being is just sort of this idea, emphasizing the idea that because these things exist in different ontological structures, they exist in different ways. Yeah. And Sorry, just to emphasize this point, I think Jason Turner um, 
has a really good sort of example. I sort of bring this out in the paper with, um, and I try and not good at illustrating things, but I tried to illustrate in the paper where he sort of used the example of a pegboard. Yeah, I love so, your pegboard. Yeah. This is helpful. Yeah. So the ontological monist, so which is sort of the general idea at the moment in philosophy that we all have one way of being, one structure of reality, they would um, believe that there's one pegboard. And so let's say we have this board and then we have different pegs on, on the board. And so these different pegs might have some rubber bands that are around these pegs, which are just basically properties. So you have, let's say, the table, which is one peg. You have a human, which is another peg. You have a number. You have a letter. You have all of these sort of things. And abstract and concrete all exist in the same pegboard. So the pegs exist all on the same board. But an ontological pluralist would say, no, that's it. That's the wrong way of visualizing reality. Mm -hmm. Reality is in such a way that we have different pegboards for different types of objects. And so abstract objects will go on one pegboard and concrete objects will go on another pegboard. And so these pegboards are not overlapping, even though they can overlap, but generally they don't. And so these things, because they exist in these different pegboards, they exist in different ways. We can't say they exist univocally in the same way. Yeah. So, so real quick. So, um, do we bring the rubber bands back in on yes. ontological pluralism? Like what, what work is the rubber band doing in the, in the, yeah. So it's just the idea of properties. So the, if you have a peg, um, so with, when I was visualizing in the paper, I didn't have any rubber bands on the abstract, yeah. let's say, because they don't, they're not instantiating or exemplifying any properties, mm. but on the concrete board, you have, let's say one rubber band, which is on a peg, which is the property of color or something. Yeah. Or, properties certain properties of weights so yeah the, the bands are just basically properties and let's say if they are attached to get they're sort of stretched together and they're they're looping over both pegs that yeah. might be a relation so i'm related to in some way let's say i, I bear the father relation to another um concrete object which yeah. is my daughter or something so yeah it, the the bands are just playing the roles of, yeah. of properties yeah okay that i think that's really helpful because i think yeah. some people will jump on that so there there's this pegboard the abstract pegboard let's say there's a blue peg and this is going to mess up universals because the universal blue is not blue itself okay we all know that so let's just let's color this fatherhood peg in the abstract blue and then the rubber band would uh encompass all the pegs that bear a father relation it's like that yeah it could it could be that that but it might be the individual peg might have the rubber band stretched to a specific individual peg. So gotcha. I have my daughter. Because um, that's a relation. Myself, yeah, and then the yeah. rubber band will be attached, and that might be the father relation or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. That's um, good. Yes, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. okay, so with, with that, so we have ways of being. Um, yes. um, you talk about elite uh, quantifiers, but um, so generic existence, like I think you still you still have room for that, right? Like there's still, yes. yeah. there's still a univocal all things that exist still in the, in the univocal sense that they still all have existence, right? Exactly. Yes. So this is a very important move um, that needs to be emphasized because there was a very, very well-written paper by Trenton Merricks Mm. where he argues um, basically saying that there's a problem with, um, with ontological pluralism uh, given this idea of generic existence. Now generic existence is just the idea that, um, all entities that exist fall into a univocal category of existence. 
And so there's a general quantifier. There's a quantifier that applies to all of these entities that fall within this category. So abstractor will have the quantifier and that same quantifier will be utilized for myself, given that yeah. we both exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the problem that Merricks was trying to raise was this idea of there needs to be an affirmation of generic existence. And it gets very difficult, his paper, but it's just basically the idea that there needs to be an affirmation of generic existence. Now, he was saying ontological pluralists don't do this. They don't affirm generic existence. And so Mm -hmm. you have an issue that can be raised against them. And and the objection that you raised, I I am persuaded by it. But what's interesting is that... um, Chris, so McDaniel and Turner's view has room for generic existence. Yeah. Because what they're trying to say is that, let's say we have these quantifiers. So we have elite quantifiers, and I think it'll be helpful to sort of try and understand what these are now. So you have these quantifiers, and these elite quantifiers are just quantifiers that firstly are semantically primitive. Mm-hmm. So they're not reducible to something else uh, linguistically, but they also are natural now, people might be saying, well, what's going on? Natural, what do you mean by that? Now, natural stems from the, the, the term or notion natural stems from the work of David Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, it's just basically trying to say that the vocabulary that we're using or the, the quantifiers that we're using, they need to capture things that cut, carve nature at its joints. Mm-hmm. They need to speak about fundamental things. These quantifiers need to quantify over the most fundamental things in reality. And so... Elite quantifiers pick out things which are more fundamental. And so what we're trying to say then is that everything falls into this category of generic existence and has Mm -hmm. a generic quantifier that is applicable to them. However, there are also, because there are different structures of reality, there is a more fine-grained quantifier which is applicable to each thing that falls into that specific the um, domain of reality. So there are certain quantifiers that range over the abstract domain of reality, and there's certain mm-hmm. more fine-grained quantifiers that uh, that quantify or they range over the domain of concrete objects. So it's the I- idea of fine-grainedness. If you want to have a more fine-grained ontology, you can't just have the generic quantifier um, that applies to everything that exists, which it is applicable to everything. But we can also have these more fine-grained quantifiers that that sort of carve nature a little bit more finely um, with abstractor and, and with concreter and other things that are fundamental in that sense. Yeah. I really like this one too, because yeah, you, you have, I know that like Menongianism is bad and you don't want to be a Menongian. You don't want to say that there's multiple. So when you say ontological pluralism, it's like, well, that sounds like Menong and didn't, didn't Quine like totally refute him? Um, but but here it's like no the the existential quantifier the yeah <laughs> this way yeah, yeah. that yeah. that's got this like range and you can parse that in different ways and it's actually natural to do so because we do it all the time when we say something's abstract we say it's concrete so it's not making up some category it's actually just trying to do justice to the language that we already use exactly yeah that's exactly it yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's good I I like yeah. that um. I, I don't know much about like Minong, Mainong, whatever. Um, is that still? I don't know if uh, if Merrick's like raised that charge against ontological pluralists. But do you do you have any kind of concern that this is like Mainongianism? Is that even a, a, on the radar? Or who yeah, I, I I don't think so because it's it's just I exa- I think you captured it perfectly. It's just trying to. Um, you know, capture our ordinary usage of language because we don't use language in the way that there is just one you know, 
there is this quantifier that applies to everything right. you know, univocally. We affirm that there is a quantifier that we all fall into, but we, when we speak, we speak with more fine-grained speech. Mm-hmm. And so we do speak in a way like, you know, are there any numbers here? Um, I mean, when I'm saying, are there any numbers here? What I'm really quantifying over in my speech is concrete objects. Because if right. you said to someone, are there any, can you see a number here? Right. Um, they're going to say no. Um, yeah, it's not that kind of thing. it's on the wall or something's written out. But you're not going to be able to say that because what you're doing, you're quantifying in a specific way, in a more fine-grained way, because you are quantifying just over concreter. Yeah. Even though, let's say you affirm, let's say some Platonism or something, where there are these abstract objects, there are numbers existing but I'm not quantifying in that way in my speech. Right. And so what this is trying to do is trying to actually say there is a ontological basis for this because there are different structures of reality. And so these quantifiers allow us to capture those reality in the best way possible. Yeah. I like it, man. Again, it's, it's, it's scary cause it's new, but um, yeah. it's, it's really cool. And I, I'm excited to see for everyone else to see as well, the work yeah. you're about to do with that. Um, so we have these different existential qua- uh, quantifiers, yeah. um, which are more fine-grained than just the the standard uh, existential quantifier. And you have, I don't know how to refer to that, existential quantifier, like backwards E, A, yeah. and then you have, you know, like backwards E, C. Yeah. Yeah. Can, you just, yeah. can, can you explain those for us? Yeah, it's just having sort of the subscript thing. So yeah, it's it's weird. It's difficult. It's easy writing it, but probably yeah, yeah. explaining it um, is is not so easy. But it's just saying, you know, something exists in a concrete way. Something exists in a abstract way. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't just say something exists. If you say something exists, you're just talking in the generic context with that sort of backwardsy generic um, quantifier. Yeah. But when we're saying something exists in a concrete way, we're saying this thing exists, but it exists in a way that concrete objects exist. And this thing exists, let's say an abstract object, but it exists in an abstract way because it exists in the way that abstract objects exist within their framework and structure of reality. Yeah. So it's just basically using ways talk. That's probably the easiest way. Yeah. Um, but it's easier to write than it is probably to communicate in speech. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I pulled a camera and Bertu- Bertuzzi, Bertuzzi, and uh, I don't know if we can see that, but um, are you able to see it? I can't see right now. Yeah, yeah, no. no okay, cool, cool. So yeah, then you can it. see like there's the existential quanti- qua- uh, quantifier, which is backwards e for the for the folks. Sorry if you're listening, this is no good. But if you're watching on YouTube, and then that can be parsed or or um, that can be carved at its you know joints more more aptly by saying, look, there's two different at least two these two different ways. One's a concrete. And I, again, I, I think it's it's good because it does help us with everyday language. Someone says, like, do you think the number two exists? I'm like, yeah, I do. And like, this book exists, dude. Like, where's the number two? And you're like, well, I don't think it exists in that way. Yeah. It exists as a concrete. I'm, I'm a Platonist myself, so I think it exists. In a, but depending on how you parse that, you're going to parse it in different yeah. ways. But we do this all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we got that. So that's yeah. kind of some, some tools that's going to help us. But now we got... Uh, Unless you got anything else to say, the, uh, theistic ontological pluralism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I can. I can move on to that. So, yeah, utilizing this metaphysics, so utilizing this view of reality, where there are different structures, different frameworks of reality, and things exist in different ways corresponding to their structures and 
and frameworks. We can apply this, I think, to deal with the theism dilemma because <laughs> a theist, as I was saying, is sort of pulled in two ways. So a traditionalist who affirms theism wants to say that God is existing as a simple, immutable, impartial, yeah. and timeless entity. But he's I also... A, I got a, some graphs for us here. Or great, some, I, figures I pulled from your paper. So yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I if you're listening, uh, sorry. but Yeah, hopefully it's clear. So yeah, we have these two con concepts of God. Um, and so what you have sort of in that sort of if it's coming across in the left image with the with the multiple sort of arrows, you have this idea of God having all of these attributes, but these attributes are not identical to him. And so he bears an instantiation relation to them. Um, sorry, that's actually the right one. So the right one is, yeah, he, he has all of these attributes um, and these attributes are all part of him. So I was trying to say in a way, they're all sort of, you know, parts of him, even though a neoclassical theist won't say maybe it's a part, but they are all composing God because they're not identical to him. And so the one with the arrows, sorry, is the one where we have identity relations. So each of the properties that God has, he has them and he has them in a, in a way that is identical to them, given his simplicity. So we're sort of pulled with these two conceptions. We have these two conceptions in front of us and we have sources of authority that says in a way that we seem to have to at a prima facie level, have to affirm these two concepts. Mm. But that leads to contradiction, given that they are basically just polar opposites and contraries of each other. And so the way that we can, I was trying to put forward in the paper that we can square the circle and try and affirm both of these sort of polar opposite concepts of God is by assuming this view of ontological pluralism. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea, as we were saying, that there are different structures of reality. And so let's go with the abstract structure of reality, and we have the concrete structure of reality. And so these structures of reality are distinct, and these structures of reality um, have different ways of being that correspond to them. So abstract objects exist in one way, and concrete objects exist in a distinct way. Now, God, the way that I sort of see, is, see this is that I place God within both structures of reality. Mm -hmm. So God exists in the abstract way, sort of in the abstract structure and he has an abstract way of existing and then god exists in the concrete structure and he has the concrete way of existing mm -hmm. so exactly as it says sort of in the image there god is the entity who's perfect he's the ultimate source of reality and so he has in one way of existing which we can call his abstract way of existing he's a simple timeless and Im immutable and impassable being and then in his concrete way of existing He's a complex, temporal, mutable, and passable entity. Now, how this deals with the uh, contradiction is given the elite quantifiers that are in play here. If we just had the generic quantifier that's applied univocally, um, we will have a problem because we'll say God exists, and he exists as a simple and complex being. He exists mm -hmm. as a timeless and temporal temporal being, mutable and immutable, impassable and passable. And that will be contradictory. But if we have different ways of being, which um, are expressed by different elite quantifiers, then we don't have a contradiction there because we can relativize each of the attributes to the distinct ways of being. So we're not saying that God in his, in his abstract way of being is simple and complex. We're saying he's solely simple in this way of being. Yeah. He's solely timeless and immutable and impossible in this distinct way of being. But then in his concrete way of being, which is an, a distinct way of being from the abstract one, he is complex, mutable, passable, and uh, temporal. And so these quantifiers allow us to deal with this problem because we relativize to each way of being. Mm -hmm. So what we then have is that we don't have a contradiction anymore because we're not affirming 
and disaffirming the same thing. We're affirming one thing in one way and we're affirming another thing in the in, a, in another way. And so the contradiction there is not is not to be had. Yeah. yeah. And and again, uh this is a this is an old move called the Qua move from the uh medievals and it's just qua and, and it's used in terms of of cashing out the different natures of the two natures of Christ. Qua his yeah. divine nature, he's got, you know, he's omnipotent, but but qua his human nature, he's not. And so it's not like this tactic is uh is wrong or, or brand new or anything like that, but it's it's new in that it's referring to it's it's trying to uh, synthesize two different models or extensions of of God, yeah. and so how how might we like motivate this right? So it's not like it's a bad move or anything like that. Yeah. I, and I, again, dude, I like it, but uh, people yeah. at home might say like that's great and it works for Christ because it makes sense there. So now we we need to motivate it in our in yeah. our in uh, yeah our models of God. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, first, because I sort of bring this up in a footnote saying, because I think when it comes to theology, (laughs) the new is not good. (laughs) You know, you want to hold to the the old and affirm it in some way. And so when you have this sort of new sort of, you know, ontology in play and we're applying it, people say, but was this thought of before? Mm -hmm. What I was trying to exactly, I was trying to bring on the footnote is you have this exact thing happening and it was affirmed throughout church history. Um, and by ecumenical councils when it was applied to the context of Christ. Yeah. And so the method itself has historical precedent. And so my idea then is just saying, well, why can't we apply this in a different context and deal with a problem which is a problem? And so what we have is, yes, this relativization, this qua sort of move is just in play here. Um, but it's not an ad hoc move, given that we are affirming you know, a ready-made ontology here, which is this idea that there are different ways of being. So we're just saying, well, God falls into these different structures. And so given that he falls into these different structures, we can then relativize the attributes to each structure and way of being. Um, But yeah, the main idea is to affirm the method itself of relativizing things is there. Um, It's just trying to use it in a different context and maybe with a different sort of ontological framework behind it but but it's there in some way yeah Yeah. um so so like uh guys like paul helm uh have have charged any have charged some people who have done similar things with um man they're being they're they're processed theologians because they have they have god changing and god not changing and um one way that i that i found to motivate this because i actually really really like this is to use an authorial analogy and it's kind of a continental way. So I, sorry for all the analytics, but, but it's saying like <laughs> we can, we can motivate this, this uh, qua move, not just with Christ, but with God. If we say that God is like an author of creation in that he wrote himself into the story and qua the story, he has real relations. He's a character. He's the main character. So he relates to everyone, but, but qua the uh, God, the author who stands outside of the story Man, he doesn't have the same relation to the characters that he does inside the story. And this doesn't have to be like a, then we, this is Gnosticism. We don't know anything about God insofar as God represents himself truly for who he really is, a character within the story, which he has to do because he's God. Yeah. And so that, that's one way that I found. And so I really like your approach, man, because I think it actually does all the metaphysical work of the, the continental just slapping on yeah. of the ethereal analogy. So I want to flesh it out more because I think that uh, I think you're motivating this through um, through Lewis's modal realism, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I sort of in that section of the paper where I say, well, it seems to be, you know, we can go home now. The the 
<laughs> contradiction is not there. But then someone could just raise the objection and say, well, why would we take God to be an abstract object? Mm. So, I mean, it seems to be clear that throughout church history, we've affirmed the concreteness of God. Yeah, We don't really, uh, you know, take God to be abstract. And so is it the case that he actually has an abstract way of being that allows us to relativize the, the attributes in those ways? Right. And so I'll say, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, that seems to be a fair objection. And so there needs to be reasoning to sort of allow God to fall into to the di- distinct uh, structures of reality. And so the way I do that is by then sort of changing tack and, and going on to a, uh, you know, different sort of metaphysical view, uh, which is modal realism. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, if you want me to unpack that now, it might yeah, be. yeah, please do. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So you have this sort of really interesting view from Lewis, as I was saying before, you know, giant within contemporary contemporary philosophy and sort of notorious and infamous for this, <laughs> this idea of modal realism. This is the thing that sort of stuck with him. And yeah, so it's sort of taking a step back. Um, we have this, you know, this view of modal, you know, this idea of modality, this, this field of modality where we're studying about, you know, modal terms like possibility and necessity. And, you know, a lot of philosophers are trying to understand, well, what is the metaphysics behind our language use? Mm-hmm. Um, or I think a better way to sort of go with it is sort of truth maker idea. So we have all of these modal statements. So it's possible that I could have been, you know, I could have been a, a lawyer, or it's possible that I could have been, you know, a, a physician, or I could have been a football player, or I could have been a basketball player. You know, it's, it's possible. It seems to be the case that these things could have taken place. Or it's possible that, you know, Hitler could have won World War II. Um, so, you know, great sort of TV show. Um yeah, oh my gosh, you just left Man my in mind. the High yeah, Castle. Man right? in the High Castle. Man in the High yeah. Castle. Not as good as the book, but yeah. Yeah, so- I've never read the book, which I need yeah. to. Yeah. Um, I'm hooked on uh, TV shows too much. But yeah, so that's a you know great sort of view where you know Hitler could have won. You know, it's possible that he could have mm-hmm. won it. Um, and so we have all of these possibility terms, and we have necess- ne- uh, you know terms of necessity, like it's necessary that I'm if you assume something like origin essentialism it's necessary that you know my parents are my parents you know yeah. it's necessary that if i'm a human i'm a rational animal or something like that so we have that's, all of these that's, me- that's metaphysical necessity right or, or are we do we um, care about the necessity involved here yeah i'm, I'm not so fussed okay. about it. yeah cool, cool. get sort of the, you know i don't want to bore people too much <laughs> already yeah, yeah so point. you know it just seems to be the case that you know it, i i am these things and i must be these things yeah Um, And it's possible that I could have been these things. So we have all of these modal terms. Now, a lot of philosophers, um, specifically sort of in the 70s, 80s, 90s, were trying to say, well, what's the truth maker of these terms? What makes it the case that it's possible that I could have been these things? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some philosophers said, let's get deep into the metaphysics. So you have this field of modal metaphysics where they try and say, what are these truth makers for these these propositional terms, for these statements that I could have been something? And so a lot of, you know, there was a big push sort of in the 80s and 90s for sort of possible world semantics. So the truth maker or the modal structure behind these modal statements are possible worlds. And so... It's true that I could have, you know, it's true that I could have been a, a lawyer because in some possible world, I am a lawyer. Or it's true that I could have been, you know, or Hitler could have won World War II because in some possible world, he did win World War II. And so what they've done is that they're utilizing this terminology of possible worlds 
to help you know serve as truth makers for these statements that why it's true is because it's true in these possible worlds and so then what happened really is that there was then a divide between um what so peter van ingwagen sort of termed them you have concretists and you have abstractionists so you have a divide in the way to understand the reality of these um these worlds so abstractionists people like alvin plantinger mm-hmm. would take all of these possible worlds to be abstract objects like states of yeah. affairs for planning all right yeah so yeah. so yeah he would he would define them as states of affairs but states of affairs yeah they're, they're these abstractors so they're abstract yeah. objects but he would define them as st- states of affairs or you'll have robert adams who will take possible worlds to be propositions and mm-hmm. things like that um so there are these abstract objects and they don't exist in con- concrete ways but they are the things that we can identify as possible worlds which then serve as truth makers. But then you have the lone wolf of, of David Lewis. I think he is honestly a lone wolf in this. Yeah. Uh, so you have people as I bring out in the paper later to def- sort of develop it. But the whole package of concretism is found in the wor- work of David Lewis, who believed that the best way to understand the nature of these possible worlds that serve as truth makers for the, these uh, modal statements is that these worlds are actually concrete objects. Mm-hmm. And what he means, even though he struggled to sort of understand, you know, the distinction between abstract and concrete objects, because it is difficult to understand what these mean. But the way to understand it is the way that we see our world, every other possible world that exists is like our world. Yeah, I got a slide. It, this, yeah. this might help. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes. yeah. So that's good, actually, because I can take a step back. So. In his ontology, there is something called the pluriverse, which is just basically the totality of reality. And what makes up the totality of reality are all these concrete possible worlds. So we have this totality of reality that has all of these concrete worlds. And these worlds are not states of affairs. They're not propositions. They're not abstract objects. But they are concrete objects in the way that our universe is physical. That's how all of these worlds are. So the world in which, you know, Hitler won World War II, that's a real world and it's concrete in the same way that this existence is concrete. And so they're not abstract objects, but they exist in some way. Um, But the key thing about these worlds is that they are, so they're spatio-temporal like ours, but they are isolated. So they are not, they cannot be causally linked in any way. So the existence that we have, our possible world, which is one of the infinite plurality of worlds, so that's why it's called the pluriverse, infinite plurality of different worlds, our world cannot be connected to any other world. So we cannot go, it's not like a multiverse, which sometimes there's a misconception. It's not the multiverse because yeah. there's, there's connect, a spatial, sorry, there's um, causal links between our universe and the, the other universe that makes a multiverse. Yeah. But it's the idea that within the pluriverse, so that image there, each world is isolated. And so yeah. they are not in any way connected. So, so, so I, had, I, I just yeah. had Barry Lamb on uh, to talk about this. And he said, you know, if there was a, a multiverse in the way that Marvel pitches it, where there is connection, that would be in its own universe in the in uh, yes. Lewis, Lewisian sense. And then there'd be because it has to be isolated. So even if it'd be multiverses within exactly. uh, a universe within the plural. Yes, exactly. So that multiverse would just make up one possible world. Yeah, right. So, yeah. So every possible world is just, you know, just simply the totality of spatio-temporal reality that we have, which could be a universe or it could be a multiverse. Right. But that multiverse would just make up, compose one of those possible worlds. So in that image, it would just be P1. Mm-hmm. Um, or sorry, it'll be world one or P1. And then you have... 
world two or P2, uh, which is just another possible world. Um, but that world is not connected in any ways to us. So we have all of these possible worlds, but something very important to understand as well is that he had different ontological categories. Mm -hmm. So the image might be brought out. Um, hopefully people can understand it, but basically he had three um, ontological categories. So everything that can exist and does exist falls into one of these categories or maybe even more than one as I bring out later. So he had the category of possible individuals he had the category of impossible individuals, and he had the category of non-individuals. Possible individuals are all of the possible worlds. So all the possible worlds fall into that ontological category. Everything that inhabits those possible worlds, like us, like tables, like pebbles, they all fall into the category of possible individuals. Mm. And impossible individuals, as I tried to bring out in that sort of image there, which says IPI, is basically an impossible individual is like a myriological sum of different in you know different worlds yeah even though they're not sort of causally related there's a way of these impossible individuals sort of being joined together yeah. again emphasizing impossible individuals <laughs> didn't really affirm as such the reality of these things but yeah. there's maybe some room for that so um, I, I don't know does this one help anymore or no um overlap the development okay. later yeah so it's okay. still that one so you have Sorry, as you can see, all of the worlds, world one, world two, in that sort of concrete box, um, those are all of the possible individuals, PI, PI, you can see all those worlds, they, they will all fall into the possible individual category. And then that sort of oval that goes around two of the possible worlds um, each, you will have the impossible individuals, because it's just saying there's a myriological sum of all of these possible worlds. Um, but that category is not very important. It's the first category of possible individuals, concrete worlds. And then for the paper, it's the third category. So he had the category of non-individuals, which is sort of that uh, weird box that I have, mm -hmm. that sort of long rectangular box, um, which is basically the idea that he all abstract objects exist in the category of non-individuals. Abstract objects do not exist within within worlds they don't exist within the category of possible individuals they exist from he uses the term the standpoint of of every world or worlds so they don't exist within worlds but they exist from the standpoint they basically are outside of these uh sort of possible worlds these concrete worlds um but well, and, and is that yeah. is that like i mean just saying that there's plato's Plato's yeah, I was, heaven, I was about right? to say that. So, I mean, he wouldn't affirm a Platonic heaven, but right. you can visualize it to to help us sort of as a as a heuristic to to understand it. You can okay. visualize it like you know Plato's sort of heaven, where all these abstracts are existing above all concrete reality. Yeah. That's probably the way to visualize it, but I don't think you'll affirm the reality of that sort of picture. But it's just the idea that yeah, these abstract objects they exist in the third category of non individuals, um, and they are not within. A concrete world they exist as abstract objects and so yeah yeah well and that that would be like numbers properties propositions yeah, events, so, pure sets yeah, or they are exactly, pure sets yeah. he says right yeah so pure sets is basically the category that all these things fall within yeah um so yeah he'll just basically call them sets but they exist as abstract objects in that sort of specific way outside of the worlds yeah so we have this pluriverse pluriverse is everything that exists Within the pluriverse, you have all these concrete worlds that fall into the possible individual category. Non, -in uh, You have impossible individuals, which are not so important, but they're just sums of all these possible worlds. And then you have non-individuals, which exist from the standpoint of every world, which is basically outside of each concrete world. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So then just 
focusing more than uh, with a concrete world. So you have these worlds. Um, they exist within the pluriverse. They exist. Each world exists like our world. So they're each concrete. Um, but they are spatio-temporally isolated. So there's no way. We don't share the same space as them. Uh, the same time doesn't exist in the same way, maybe. And uh, they're causally isolated, which is the key thing. We cannot causally affect each world. So each world is just by itself, isolated, and they cannot be related in any way. Um, and so the key thing for him then is that given that, um, and this is basically for this modality issue, so given that um, each world is spatio-temporally isolated, uh, things exist within a singular world. So mm -hmm. each entity is world-bound. Yeah. So we exist in this world, but we do not exist in another world possible world and this is very key because it's very different from plantinger because plantinger um affirms trans world identity so i yeah. exist the same object myself exists in another possible world lewis does not affirm that he disaffirms that he says we are world bound because each world is not causally or spatio-temporally related and so we exist individually in each world and so then the question is then well what's the truth maker then for the statement i could have been a lawyer right well it's not me because I don't exist in that other world where it's true that I am a lawyer. And so what he introduces is the idea of it's called counterpart theory. So the idea that I have a counterpart of myself existing in another possible world. Mm -hmm. And so this counterpart is an exact duplicate of myself. So it looks like me. Um, well, not necessarily has to look like me, but the closest worlds to us um, to our worlds in a way closest in whatever sense you can say that, yeah. that individual would be very similar to me. Same skin color, same gender, same all of these things. Um, but there will be something different in that the lawyer world, he's existing as a lawyer instead of a lecturer or philosopher or whatever. Um, or in another world, he exists as a, you know, a, a window cleaner. He exists as a car mechanic. Yeah. There's something different about each world because each duplicate is like me, but there's something different. That's why it's a duplicate. That's why it's not identical to me. Mm -hmm. It's not numerically identical. So in each world, you have a counterpart of each individual. And so the counterpart then serves as the truth maker for each of the statements about myself. So things about me are not made true by myself, modal statements, but my counterparts are the things that make them true. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of this is basically to, to serve Lewis's role also, his, um, his idea that we need to reduce modality. Because his idea was, he's a modal realist in his mind, but he wanted to reduce modal terms to non-modal things. Mm -hmm. Because he had a problem with, you know, having primitive modality. Because, you know, things about myself, you know, possible statements about myself, modal statements about myself, are they things which are primitive or can we reduce them? And he was trying to say we can reduce them. And so for him, it was reducible to these concrete worlds and things about myself are reducible to counterparts about myself, counterparts mm -hmm. of myself. And so de-ray de, um, de modality, things about myself, possible uh, statement, modal statements about myself are made true about um, by other worlds and made true by counterparts of myself. Yeah. So statements about Hitler are made true. So Hitler won World War II. That's not made true by Adolf Hitler existing within our world. It's made true by another world and by a counterpart of Adolf Hitler. 
Yeah. So not Adolf Hitler in our world, but another Adolf Hitler who's not numerically identical to him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so man, there's so many things with, with Lewis's uh, yeah. stuff and, and this isn't an episode all about Lewis, but that to me, that doesn't seem like derailed necessity because it's not um, like, that's not, it's not me. It's literally a, a counterpart. And so I don't know how this like arrow of necessity still tracks out. Like it's, it doesn't seem like it's actually a rigid Parker is not like a rigid designator yeah. because i actually don't exist in even the closest possible worlds it's my yeah. counterpoint any 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 idea um yeah yeah so you have so this is a really famous objection uh, raised by saul kripke okay um, against him so it's called the humphrey objection so if you have this sort of uh, let's use a more contemporary president uh which maybe some people love some people don't so let's say donald trump okay famous donald trump so ex-president and um you know, statements about him, things about him, let's say he won, you know, the last election. So he won the election now. So is it 2020? Ele- would you call it, sorry, 2021 election? Yeah, you'll call it that. So 2021 or 2020? 2020, yeah, 2021. But it doesn't start. I'm lost yeah. in my timeline. Uh, so yeah, so 2021 election. Well, it's not true because he didn't win, unless you're a conspiracy theory, but he didn't win, let's say, he didn't win the 2021 election. Okay. Um, but... The statement that he could have won that election is made true by another something, it being true in another possible world. Mm-hmm. But it's made true by the counterpart of Donald Trump. Yeah. But what Saul Kripke was trying to say is that there seems to be an, an intuition problem here. Because as you were saying, it's it's intuitively the case that it's possible that Donald Trump won this because Donald Trump actually won this in that possible world. Right. But if it's my brother, Donald Trump's brother, if he has a brother or, or someone else, it's not true that Donald Trump won it. It's true that his brother won it. Right. And a counterpart seems to be like a brother. It seems to be like something which is not Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And so why would we say Donald Trump won it? Because his brother won it. We wouldn't. And so just calling that brother a counterpart isn't going to help the matter because it's not Donald Trump that did it. And so he was trying to say at an intuitive level, it seems to be the case that statements that are modal statements that are made true by Donald Trump need to be made true by Donald Trump and not by counterparts of Donald Trump because those are not to do with Donald Trump. And so, yeah, it's basically an intuitive thing, but it's a, it's a very influential objection because it doesn't seem to be the case that Donald Trump is serving as a truth maker when he should be serving as a truth maker of those day Ray necessity or, or possibility statements and so yeah you have you have problems here yeah you could just toss in maybe not as easily as this but toss in like a substance ontology and just say like their essences they share the same essence then it wouldn't be it'd be a counterpoint counterpart in a certain sense in that he has different experiences than this parker does maybe he yeah. sees kangaroos toppling over without tails or whatever yes. lewis wants to say yeah. yeah like if you have substances and essences i see the deray stuff but that's that's yeah neither here nor there uh maybe when i have kripke on or some um yeah that'll be good <laughs> yeah but okay but yeah. one one more just really and i'm sure someone yeah. else has raised this but it's like a benesseraf problem in mathematics of like how do we know abstract entities so like i haven't read much of lewis uh just looking at his um counterfactuals book but what like there's an epistemological thing going on where like if they are these worlds are um maybe it's the problem of irrelevance or something but if they are so isolated from each other, how can I know that there is a possible world where Donald Trump won the election? Like, is it just through intuition or? 
Yeah, this is a really incisive point. So thank you for raising that. Yeah, this is one of the issues that Lewis tried to tackle, but I don't think it's been sufficiently, wasn't sufficiently tackled by him. But he, that is one of the main objections against him, that how can you know of these things? Because it seems, it depends how you view epistemology, but there seems to be, you know, in the belief process, um, our belief forming process, there seems to be the need for some sort of causal link between you know, the thing that, you know, causes me to have the belief, there seems to be, a needs to be some form of a causal relation. But if I'm believing about some spatio-temporally isolated world and those worlds are not causally related to ours, yeah. how can I really know anything about them? And so the way Lewis tried to tackle it was he basically just bit the bullet and said, well, if we do this for mathematical objects and we allow mathematics to, you know, mathematicians to go on doing maths, Mm -hmm. why can't we do it with in the modal metaphysics realm? So abstractor, yeah, exactly as you were saying, there's a problem of epistemology, how we know of these things. Um, But he was just basically saying, well, if we allow mathematical objects to, you know, get past this and we assume them, um, then why can't we do the same thing? And so the reason why he was saying that is because he said, well, given that there is an economical sort of virtue uh, that we can get from this, yes, let, the same way that we do that with maths, yeah. we can do the same with with this epistemology, with this um, with this modal metaphysics. Because he was saying, because we can reduce modality, and he was saying we have a more parsimonious on, ontology because we are not saying there are all these primitive modal terms, mm-hmm. but because we can reduce the modal to the non-modal there's an economical value that we have here. And so we just need to bite the bullet and say, well, because yeah. mathematical objects are allowed to do that and because there's, yeah. there's great things happening there, we can do the same thing in our modal metaphysics. Yeah. So, and so we, well, yeah. so we have, we have this qualitative parsimony in that we don't have all these different ways. Well, I mean, you're, you're bringing out, there are different ways of being, but we don't yeah. have all these things. We can reduce the, uh, yeah, we can yeah. reduce modality to concreta. So there yeah. we go. Boom. No problem. But then he's got this weird, like quantitative, not simplicity right where it's yeah. just multiplied yeah. everything yes yeah which, which it's like what the trade-off what do you want you want qualitative yeah. or quantitative and yeah lewis is like qualitative yeah yeah so i'm um, something um interesting is that i've always you know say like i'm always like you know getting papers out but this is actually a very interesting thing because i so there's a paper that's under review which i hope comes out sometime it's been for ages where i try and actually argue for you know how i've done with grounding i'm trying yeah, to yeah. argue from the existence of possible worlds to God. And I think, you know, using that same sort of thing of simplicity, background knowledge and all these sort of things, I'm actually trying to say, well, if we affirm Lewis's ontology, his metaphysics, um, you have simplicity problems, you have fit with background knowledge because we can't know of these things um, and we have other issues with it. And so um, it seems to be the case that the simplest explanation for these things, if they exist, is God. Yeah. Yeah. So I try to yeah, yeah, I try and I, yeah. in the you know the most laborious fashion, but I yeah I try and say he has a problem yeah. because a lot of philosophers have tried to say well you have such a crazy ontology because as, as I, I didn't raise but one of the key things for him and I, I do bring out in the paper is the idea that each world is actual. So you know what you have with Plantinga is each of these worlds or the people who hold to abstractionist the abstract view of the possible world they would say. There's only one actual world. Okay, the mm-hmm. world existing is the one actual world. All of these worlds are they exist in some way, 
uh, but they exist as abstractive. But there's one world which is actual. Yeah. But Lewis had the view that every world is actual because for him, actuality is an indexical term, like now or something like that. And so for the utterer, each world is actual. So my counterpart in another world is existing in the same way that I'm existing in, in the actual world because the world is actual for them. And so for him, so for, for philosophers who look at this, they have uh, one of the main issues for him is this incredulous stare where people have looked yeah. at it just seems to be crazy that there is a world where there are unicorns and headless chickens running around because for him any anything that's possible exists so anything that you can think of that's possible um exists and so headless chickens are possible and there's a world with headless chickens there's yeah. a world with unicorns and so the problem that you have is there is a parsimony problem the way Lewis tries and deals with that is trying to make the distinction between qualitative and quantitative parsimony and, and simplicity. And so saying, yeah, quantitatively, I've got this crazy ontology, but qualitatively, I really don't because they all right. fall into the same category. So, yeah, that's the way he sort of deals with it. But you have a lot of philosophers who are just saying they can't really stomach it. Yeah. Right. Well, and, yeah, and in, his ans in, in answering the Benesaraf problem and saying, like, look, mathematicians don't have to do it, so neither do I. It's like, well... I think the best explanation is God over for the mathematicians. And so then you just, likewise, if that's the best explanation, then you just let God into your yeah. ontology. Like if, yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. Lewis, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But, but the, like, I'll let you do all the, the hard work on that stuff. So, yeah. so, so getting back to, to using a uh, modal realism here yeah. in uh, synthesizing classical theism and neoclassical theism, like, how do, you, how do you do that? Yes. So, yeah, before, I just got to stay, take one more step, important step. Yeah. Um, oh, is right. that because it, it's important to make the step as well, because you don't want to use a crazy metaphysic that a lot of people are going to just, at, you know, from the onset say, this is crazy, so many problems. Why, you know, why are we going to take a complex, crazy metaphysics and try and apply it to this issue when it's already been, you know, thrown in the bin? Because a lot of philosophers don't affirm, and, and it's true, there is no one who affirms exactly what Lewis affirms about modal realism. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that modal realism, the category of modal realism, doesn't have other versions the issue is because Lewis has been so influential, mm. a lot of people just say, well, modal realism is Lewis's view of modal realism. When it's not, there's other philosophers, and and, and exactly as I bring out the paper, Chris McDaniel, who features in the um, ontological pluralism stuff, he yeah. also redeveloped um, modal realism in Lewis's sense. And you also have Philip Bricker, uh, influential philosopher as well, who's also taken Lewis's view, and he said, actually, there's ways to to deal with some of the objections that we bring. And so what I try and do in the paper is I try and bring uh, Chris McDaniel and Philip Bricker's development of Lewis together. And I try and say, well, given this development, we have a plausible metaphysics, which we can then apply to the God stuff. And so you don't have the objection of saying, let's just get, you know, we're not even going to go investigate this because Lewis's stuff is crazy. So yeah. just in a nutshell, well, in the briefest way as possible, yeah. what I do basically is saying, well, Chris McDaniel, what he tries to do is to deal with that Humphrey objection. He tries and says, actually, what we need is modal realism with overlap. Yeah. Because what you have with Lewis is modal realism with isolation. Each world is just isolated. But what he was trying to say is that actually we can have possible worlds overlapping. Because the way we need to understand a possible world is not as a maximal mirrorological sum of everything. 
Because if you have that, then there can't be things that overlap mm -hmm. um, in the possible world. But what he defined a possible world as, a concrete world, is each world is basically a world of spatiotemporal regions. So the way to understand a world is not a meteorological sum of everything, but a world is basically a container of different spatiotemporal regions. Mm -hmm. And so then you have objects who um, occupy each region, but they can occupy different regions. So I, myself, Josh, I exist in this world because I occupy a certain spatiotemporal region, but the same Josh can exist in another world existing in an, another spatiotemporal region. And so we have distinct regions, but we can have numerically identical objects that, ex that occupy each of those regions. Yeah. And so what we have is motor realism because we still have the concrete worlds existing there. But what we have then is each person is existing. In, they, it's possible that they exist in different worlds. And so each modal statement can be made true by myself, by a numerically identical, you know, my, myself existing in another world. And so you don't have that Humphrey objection because I, Donald Trump, did win the election in another possible world. It is Donald Trump. Yeah. And he, there is a living, breathing Donald Trump in that concrete world, but it's the same Trump. It's a numerical identity, numerically identical Trump. Um, so you have that. So he deals with the Humphrey objection. But then there's still a problem with, and I'm not going to go into it, but you have a big problem with island universes with Lewis's view of actuality, that each world is actual. There's a problem there, and I won't really go into it. But what Bricker does is basically tries and says, similar to Plantinger, really, that with each concrete world, there is at there is, a, there is at least one world that's actual. So not every world is actual. So Lewis was saying every single world is actual. Bricker develops this and says, actually, there's one world at least as actual. He's open to other worlds being actual, but there's at least one world. Mm -hmm. And so what he says is that a world is actual, not in an indexical way. Actuality is not an indexical term, but a world is actual if it bears a certain primitive special property. So our world, the actual world, bears the property of actuality. Is it, a, is it like uh, a hexady? Um, I don't know if you'll take it that way. What, what would you sort of interpret? Just like that? a, like it's undescribable. You can't really like, yeah. it's just the thisness. Like, um, it could be, I mean, you could <clears throat> take it in that sort of way. Um, but it's just, it, it's just a primitive property that okay. you can't define. You can't really understand it further, but there's something, it allows our world to fall into a different category than the other worlds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Uh, a way, yeah, a way that I'm going to develop this later is I think, yeah, there, there is a different way of existing that our world has. So that ontological pluralism, you can sort of bring that in there and say our world exists as an actual world. It exists in a different way than the other possible worlds. Even yeah. though they exist, they exist in a different way. So our world is special. That's why it's actual. Yeah, you just need another existential quantifier. Yeah, yeah, it, just, could be, it could be that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but also, yeah. something I'm thinking of is um, uh, McDaniel has a view, not just of ways of being, but he has degrees of being. So ah. things can exist in different degrees. Yeah, so, so ours would be the most fully... Yes. It has yeah, the yeah, most that, degrees of... Yes, yeah, yeah, That it could be that. So I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking through that. That's pretty but, cool. Um, yeah, then close yeah. worlds are, are a little bit less than us, but then yes, further yeah, out yeah. you go. Yeah, it could be. It could be like That's that. Cool. That's cool. So... And I actually, I, we're thinking alike a lot, but I actually had that sort of book sort of analogy in my mind because I was trying to make sense of this saying, well, Bricker says there's all of these concrete worlds that exist like Lewis does, but our world is different because it's actual. Well, what's mm -hmm. the difference there? And the way I was trying to think of it is like, 
if you have like a, a script, so you have a script and you have a movie. Yeah. Now, what happens is that the director, in a way, actualizes the script. Mm-hmm. It makes the script real. Yeah. But the characters exist. They exist already in the script in some way. They exist in some way. Or you can make it like a, let's say, a picture, picture book. They exist in the book in some way. But then when it's put in a movie, it's like it's actualized. Yeah. It's like it's animated. It's actually moving and breathing in some way. You know, you've got Spider-Man in the comic but then you have Spider-Man in the movies. Mm-hmm. Like there's some difference there, even though they exist both in these, these dimensions. And so what I was thinking was you have that sort of with all of these worlds, they all exist, but there's one world that is actually animated, actually, you know, it's actual in a way. There's yeah. something special about it. And so it's being, you know, the script is being made real in a way. And I sort of get on later to God doing that thing. Yeah. But you have all of these worlds existing, but there's one that's actual. And that's what Bricker does in developing this. So I bring McDaniel and Bricker together and say, well, the way we can understand this uh, modal realism is that there are all these infinite plurality of worlds which are defined as spatio-temporal regions, maximal regions. And you have all of these concrete objects that occupy these regions. And you can have more than one concrete object occupying more than one world. But there's one world, one maximal spatio-temporal region that is actual, and that is our world, even though there are all these other worlds that exist, but there's one that's actual. And that's yeah. what I sort of bring in. And just before I go on, sorry, I've been speaking for a bit. This is good, dude. No, it's awesome. Before I just move on to the theistic bit, this will preempt, this will um, deal with an objection that's been brought up against Lewis because you have basically, there's a, there's a sort of research, you know, area at the moment with theistic modal realism where you have some uh, philosophers, so Michael Almadia, I always struggle to pronounce the name, but yeah, I'll just go Almadia. Um, and you have other philosophers who have utilized Lewis's modal realism and said, you know what, we can actually do some theological work with this. But what they do is that they assume Lewis's view of modal realism. Yeah. And one of the objections that's been raised, a really famous objection, has been, well, this counterpart idea, what do you do with God? Because if God exists in each of the worlds, then because you don't have overlap, you don't have one entity existing in more than one world, right. if God exists in one world, because God is a necessary being, has to exist in all of the worlds, it has to be a counterpart of God. Mm-hmm. Because counterparts are the things that ground our modal statements, even on uh, statements of necessity. So we have God G1 existing in one world. Um, and then you have G2 existing in another world. You have G3 existing in another world. And then, then the problem that you have is where's monotheism there? Because there seems to need to mm. be, if you hold to monotheism, there's only one God. And it's quite funny that Lewis actually affirmed, even though he's an atheist, he affirms some form of polytheism. Because he said, right. I think it was a joke, he was saying he's the most, you know, polytheistic person in the world because he does exist that there is a god and there has to be an infinite amount of gods in all different worlds and different uh, types and, is, and yeah in this world this religion's true in this world yeah this yeah, yeah. so yeah. it was it was quite interesting you were saying that but i think you were saying that the god doesn't really exist in our world so but there's right. All the right. in other worlds yeah yeah um so yeah so what you have is that a lot of people have said well there's an objection here because if god exists in every world there has to be counterparts of god you can't affirm monotheism mm-hmm. so some philosophers have dealt with this i don't know if it's possible just to bring up um i don't know if you have the image of uh sorry the the, the pluriverse image that we had at the beginning yeah you have all of the i don't know if you can help with that 
Yeah, well, one, one sec. Um, I don't know if this helps. Does this help or not? Uh, no, not that one yet. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, that one. So okay. what some people have done, so you have, if you have the, um, the got, you have the Lewis view of modal realism, you have God existing in, in one world and you have a counterpart of God in each of those worlds. Um, but then what some philosophers have done is that they said the way to deal with this is that God doesn't exist in each of the worlds. He exists from the standpoint of each world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he exists outside of the worlds with pure sets, with the abstract objects. Mm -hmm. And so that does deal with the problem um, <clears throat> because you don't need to say there's a God existing in each of the worlds as counterparts because God, the one God exists from the standpoint of each world. Yeah. But the, then the problem that's been raised against that is that if God exists from the standpoint of each world, how can he causally affect each of the worlds? Because right. he's existing in, as abstract objects exist in their Platonic universe as such. And this they have be no causally causal, inert. Yeah, so they have yeah. no causal relation to us. So how can he be doing anything or creating anything? And some people have even, there's some so religious studies article where some people have said it actually leads to modal uh, collapse. So, you know, the famous modal collapse up, it can lead to that as well. So there's yeah. problems here. How do we assume yeah. this? So. What I then do is I believe through molding, you know, bringing together um, this is part of Lewis's view, but mostly Chris McDaniel and uh, Philip Bricker's modal realism, you bring them together, you can have a theistic modal realism that doesn't have these objections and then ultimately allows us to deal with theistic modal, sorry, deal with the theistic dilemma and the creation of, um, objection. Yeah. Okay. Well, so real, real quick. So, um, man, so much good stuff here. So one thing is just, it makes so much sense to go downstream of Lewis. Like if he's the founder of this idea, we don't always have to go back to the original, especially if his students have been advancing or even if they weren't his technical students, like people have been advancing his ideas. Of, of course you wouldn't just have to go with Lewis. Yeah. So I think that's a really great move. Uh, yeah. but then secondly, there's this, um, Coons and Pickavance brought up this they call it the problem of isolation in their metaphysics book. And it, it's, it's like Lewis wanted all these isolated worlds, but it seems like there's a meta world, which is straight up just the, the pluriverse, which is like connecting them all. So you want, you want them to be isolated, but they're not. And so they've, they've raised this as an objection, but it seems like, like why couldn't you just have God in the pluriverse? Um, so then he's not in the abstract world. We don't have to worry about that. Maybe the abstract world exists in his mind. If you're a conceptual, uh, yeah. realist or something like that theistic conceptualist but can't he just be in the pluriverse like outside all of the concrete worlds but still within the yeah. concrete meta pluriverse yeah. but then what what you might have is that entities if they're existing let's say in this concrete pluriverse where all the possible worlds are they have to exist within a world so they but have that is to the that yeah. is like the that well and and that's if coons and pickavance's objection yeah. holds then there is like a concrete meta verse mm -hmm. which is the the pluriverse itself is like a meta universe which contains all the you know what i'm saying yes yeah yeah so he in a way he exists above that i mean yeah. it could be possible that might be a way to to develop this further as well interesting um, okay the only thing is is that you won't you will have to divert quite far from Lewis's ontology, given that he had these three categories. And so things exist in each of these ways, either as a possible individual within a world, across worlds, but merely But you don't really want to have God existing in that way because then he's a no. son of all worlds. Yeah, it's really or weird. Or he exists from the standpoint. 
but he so he didn't have that category where you can have things existing sort of in this metaverse. But that can yeah. be a possibility. But again, like you said, we don't always have to hold um, right. to what Lewis is saying. Um, well, yeah. actually, th- this one right here this is helpful. So, like, um, uh, the, the middle category where there's it's the oval around two worlds. Yeah, yeah. I, fr- I forgot the terminology. Yeah, so that's impossible individuals. Impossible. Yeah, so like, if yeah. couldn't he just be an impossible individual and the oval encompasses all concrete yeah. universes? So then what you'll have is that God would be the sum of all worlds. Oh, so that's the myriological problem. Yeah, the world will exist myriologically as parts of him. So that's been, so when people have gone into like theistic mode of realism, they've looked at all the options and said, well, it doesn't seem that we don't want God within a world because there has to be counterparts of him. We don't want him as an impossible individual because he has to be made of these parts of worlds, which is really weird. Um, And so he might have to be at the standpoint, but then there's this sort of, weird how does he how is he causally related so there seems yeah. to be problems so uh, set, I don't know this, want, this set yeah. you up perfectly now yeah. you're gonna solve the problems here yeah so so the way i sort of thought of it sorry i don't know if you can go through um, to, yeah. maybe you can cycle through the images so um yeah just go back yeah so go back one sorry just go to the one where i had the red arrow i think yeah. that was uh, that one. Sorry, so that's sort of the picture of the the pluriverse of worlds that we have there. So what we have, okay, so the way I take this to be, and this will link later to the theistic ontological pluralism and deal with the theistic dilemma, is that instead of saying God exists in one of these categories as a possible individual or non-individual, I say he exists in both categories. Mm-hmm. So, and we can do that unproblematically so firstly with the possible individual category we don't because we're taking mcdaniel and um bricker's view which i've called uh, leibnizian realism with overlap Mm -hmm. so uh the terminology is sort of stemming from mcdaniel and bricker so you have um, just short way lro so you have the lro view um, of modal realism, where each world allows for overlap. So you can have an entity existing in, in different worlds. So given that God can exist in different worlds because the world is just a maximal space of temporal regions, God can occupy more than one region. And because he's a necessary being, he occupies every region in every world, um, across the world, sorry. So one region across each world. So he exists in each world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the same God, numerically yeah. identical in each of the worlds. And so you don't have to have a counterpart because God. No, no myriological problem because it's the same God. Yeah, exactly. It's the same God. So you don't have the multiple gods problem. You can affirm monotheism because he exists in each of the worlds. Um, and so you have, the, <clears throat> you have that there. So he exists in each of the worlds. But then what we also have is that God exists from the standpoint of every world. So what I assume as well is that God is not only existing in each of the worlds. He also exists from the standpoint of each world. So he exists with the abstract objects. So in the paper, I don't know if you have it there, but in the paper, I I have that both images. So you'll have G representing God existing in the middle of each world because he overlaps every world. He exists in every world. But then we also have God existing from the standpoint of every world. So God exists in the non-individual category and he exists in the possible individual category. And so we can have that. So we have our cake and eat it. So we have what Ross Cameron, so it was Cameron who um, first sort of suggested the way to deal with the 
multiple God stuff is because God exists from the standpoint of each world. And so I affirm what Cameron says and say, yes, God exists from the standpoint of each world. He exists with the abstract objects and he's not causally related at all. Okay, so he's not causally related. But then that doesn't have a causal problem for us because we have God also existing in within each world. He occupies yeah. each world. And so then he can causally act in each world because he exists not just from the standpoint, but he also exists in each of the worlds as well. Mm -hmm. And so what you have, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. So thank you for that. So you have God, the you can see in the standpoint box, he's existing there. But then you also have God existing within each world. He's overlapping each world. Mm -hmm. And so what you have then is God existing in these different categories. Now, then this fits exactly with ontological pluralism, because pluralism was trying to say that God has an abstract structure that he exists in, and he has a concrete structure that he exists in. He has an abstract way, and he has a concrete way of existing. And so what we have now is fitting Lewis's and uh, McDaniel and Bricker's metaphysics, we then bring it together with the ontological pluralism. So the first question which sort of led us down this path of modal realism was saying, well, how can God exist as an abstract object and as a concrete object? He seems to only exist in one of these categories. Mm -hmm. But what we can have with this sort of development of modal realism is that God exists as a concrete object in each of the worlds, and he's multi-located in every world because he's a necessary being. But then God exists in an abstract way as an abstract object in, uh, from the standpoint of each world. So he's not existing within each world in that specific way of, a way of being. Um, but sorry, just to uh, sort of uh, deal with something, I just, yeah, I just raised something which I want to correct my language. He doesn't exist as an abstract object, actually. He's not an abstract object, but sure. he exists in the same way or the same status as an abstract object. Yeah. So he's not a number. He's not abstract like a number, but he exists yeah. in the same way as a number, as a status of one. So that's one way of him existing and another way of him existing. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, I don't know if you have the image of dealing with the theistic dilemma. If not, I can just run it out. The, uh, yes, okay, so exactly now. So what I then do is then say, okay, let's now try and be even more fine-grained in our speech when we're, to, when we're dealing with the theism dilemma. Because what, what we can do now is... <clears throat> Instead of saying God has an abstract way of being and a concrete way of being, we can have we can use more traditional language, and it allows us to do this within the modal metaphysical sort of uh, picture that we we're utilizing and painting. Because what we have, you know, in in traditional theology, we say God exists transcendently and He exists imminently. But what you see a lot of the time in systematic books and other books is what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be transcendent and imminent? Um, you know, transcendence normally God exists beyond the world mm -hmm. and imminent is that he exists within the world. But how does that make sense? Well, within the modal sort of realism view is that we can have this here in this LRO sort of picture because God exists imminently in that he exists within each of the concrete worlds. Every single world that exists, he exists in each of them. That's what it means for him to be imminent. He is within each of the possible worlds. For him to be then transcendent is for him to exist from the standpoint of every world. 
So every single world that exists, he exists outside of it from the standpoint of each world with the other abstract objects. So we, what we say then with the ontological pluralism language is that he has a transcendent way of being. That mm-hmm. abstract way of being is now understood as a transcendent way of being because he exists from the standpoint of every world. But then he also has a imminent way of being, which used to be the concrete way of being. He exists in an imminent way because he exists within each of the possible worlds, within mm-hmm. each of the categories of possible individuals. He exists in each of the concrete worlds. So then what we can then say, dealing with the theism dilemma, using what we did before, this relativization to a way of being, what we have is that in God's transcendent way of being, we have him being simple, timeless, immutable, and impassable. And in his imminent way of being, we have him being complex, temporal, mutable, and possible. And so what this is not an ad hoc move because we can make sense of this as well. So I try and bring this out in the paper because in his transcendent way of being, as from the standpoint of every world, with the abstract objects, God is simple because abstract objects are normally understood to be simple in some way. Um, They are not made of parts. And so if God exists in that sort of, way in this sort of uh you know this standpoint of every world he exists without any parts he doesn't have to have any parts mm-hmm. even though there might be some abstract to the do if some people say uh but he doesn't have to there's no requirement for him to be he can be non-complex uh without any proper parts existing in that specific way timeless because abstracts are normally understood not to be part of our temporal sequence they're normally not located within time they normally don't have temporal extension so God exists from the standpoint of every world as a timeless being like the abstract to do. Immutable. We don't have one becoming two. We don't have three becoming six. Okay, we don't have these abstracted changing. They seem to be immutable entities that don't change in any way. And so they are existing in that way and God can also exist in that way. And impassable. Because abstracta are causally inert, they are not causally affected. So they are not changing in their emotional states or causally affected in any way. They are existing from the standpoint of every world, and so they're not connected to the world in any way. So God can exist in this transcendent way of being from every standpoint, um, of the standpoint of every world in these specific ways. But then because God has an imminent way of being as well, he exists within each world, each of the concrete worlds, he can be complex. He can be made up of properties as all entities are. So um, McDaniel would say, each region we have properties and so god occupying a region would have the property of being you know an occupier of the spatial region spatial region or spatial temporal region and so he would have properties he would be complex he will be temporal because each of the worlds each of the um, spatial regions are temporal there's a temporal sequence there's an extension and location he would have within each of the world he will be mutable because he can be um, you know, he can change because there would be causal relations that he can stand in because he's in some relation to a region. He might be part of an occupy of another region. He might, you know, whatever he might. He can have ten- tense knowledge. And- yeah, all these sort of yeah. things. So he can have all of these mutable sort of uh, uh, things, state uh, states that he falls into. And then possible as well, because he will be part of a region, he'll be able to be causally affected by things in other regions. And so what we have is 
a, a, a grounding, a more fuller, robust metaphysics that we can now attach to this ontological pluralism strategy and say, in a transcendent way of being, from the standpoint of every world, got a simple time, it's immutable and impossible. And in his imminent way of being, from you know him existing as a multi-located entity within each of the concrete worlds, he's complex, temporal, mutable, and possible. So we can have him existing in this way. And sorry, just one last point. Yeah. To motivate this anyway... <clears throat> Wouldn't we want to, I didn't bring this up in the paper, but to motivate this, just saying God is omnipresent. Uh -huh. Wouldn't we want to say he exists in any part of reality that exists? Yeah. I, I wrote that one down. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I go with immensity because yeah. I think immensity is more deep, deeper than, than yeah. uh, but, but same thing, right? Depending yes, on how yeah. you parse it. But if God is immense, yes. if, you know, fills, you know, not in he's not physical, but if yeah. God is immense, if like as Turretin and, and, everyone wants to say God is immense yep. before the modern era, then yep. wouldn't he have to feel exactly. like that? That's part yeah. of his nature. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we would want to affirm this anyway. And so we have that. We can say that God exists. Yeah. He exists wherever these abstracts exist. If they exist from the standpoint of every world, God is there yeah. and he's also within each world. Yeah. And so we have that there already. We'll want to affirm that. And so we can cash that out within this metaphysics. And because we're going with the LRO view, we're not taking a crazy metaphysics. We're yeah. not saying you have to affirm the actuality of everything. No, everything yeah. exists in a possible way, but it, there's, they're merely possible things. But And this is, I'm sorry, to raise something up. Um, I mean, the camps are, you go with modal realism a lot of the time. And let's say you affirm, so... Plantinga will call himself a modal realist, and he does. And so if you go with Plantinga or you go with Lewis, you're affirming the reality of modality, okay? mm -hmm. unless you say you know they don't exist, these things. But what Plantinga actually says is all of the abstract exist. So it's not far from this LRO view. He just right. says all of these abstract exist, all of these states of affairs, they exist, and he, he's explicit in that. But And they exist as, in the Platonic realm. They all mm -hmm. exist. Um, but there's only one of them, one state of affairs, which is actual, which obtains. Yeah. Um, but this is not far from the LRO view that I'm trying to say here, because we're saying all these, you know, instead of them being abstract objects, they're concrete. They all yeah. exist. But there's only one of them, which is actual. So it's very similar to his view. But yeah, that's where, I'm glad you brought that up, because I wanted to ask you about that, because it did seem like that, just that they're concrete. But if you have yeah. different, uh, as you, you said, you wanted to, to cash out that they have different levels of existence or whatever yeah that maybe some are, yeah. yeah 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 so yeah that, that's something i just want to affirm so it's not like if you're going with this you're going you you're, you're just all you're doing is just saying instead of the abstract they're concrete that's all you're saying yeah like, is there a big problem in saying that because there's only one of them which is actual there's only one of them that has a special category that we want to say our world has so it's not there's no actual world where there are you know talking donkeys and talking snakes which was the problem for lewis because he has to say, yeah, that world is actual like ours. But yeah. this LRO, LRO, LRO view, <laughs> maybe I need to change the terminology. <laughs> yeah. um, but this view, this specific modal realist view, allows you to affirm the same sort of thing you will do with Plantinga's view, um, but you're just saying they're concrete. Yeah. And I don't see there's a big problem in, in doing that. But, it, but, but by doing that, we can have so much theological fruit that comes from this, because you can deal with this dilemma, um, which is right in front of us. We can have, you know, God being classical in the way we want him to be classical. God is simple. He's timeless and mutable. So it's not a lie when you say God is simple, timeless, immutable, and impossible. Yeah. And you're not also lying if you say, yeah, but he's also complex, temporal, mutable, and possible. Because, again, 
we always have to relativize what we're saying to each way of being. And mm -hmm. in our speech, like we do that. So we can say, yeah, God is all of these things in his transcendent way of being, in this abstract transcendent way of being. But in this concrete, imminent way of being, God is these things. And so the Bible is true when it's saying this about God. But tradition is true when it's saying this about God. Yeah. But now what we need to do is just be more uh, fine-grained in our speech. And the metaphysics that I'm trying to say here allows us to do that. It allows yeah. us to, to go forward, yeah. So... Uh, uh, I'd think of like J.C. Beale's recent work. Um, this isn't this isn't making God a contradictory being. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Just there's because, two ways of being. So, but yeah. you can refer to God. The one you know, you can refer to God and say there's two different ways of being. But you don't have to put those together and say that's contradictory. I, I think J.C. or Dr. Yeah. Beale would would want to do that and say, but you are yeah. you just are affirming contradiction, even if yes. you can flush out why it's a contradiction, you're still saying, and I'm like, no, I, I think the qua move is legit. I think it does keep us yeah. from doing that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there's no contradiction to be had here. So I, because I, I would not affirm the idea that we can, I, I don't, you know, I don't really like that, that view because I think it's sure. just problematic and, and it opens up a can of worms yeah. you know, that we, we don't want to be opened. Um, but this is no, there's no contradiction there because there is a qua, there is a relativization. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just saying God is simple and complex. Maybe that yeah. would be contradictory. I'm saying God is simple in this specific way. And God is complex in this specific way. So there's a changing of the subjects there. That's yeah. the key thing with this move. The subjects are different. The way of beings are different. Because I'm predicating simplicity to God in this way of being, I'm then predicating it to a different subject in this way of being. Yeah. So, that, yeah, that's the well, key. Well, and, and that's good. And I think you, you um, like PVI says, look, there's no, we have to have relative counting. There's no like, it, when, when it comes to the oneness, threeness problem of the Trinity, he's like, well, that's, that's because you've like thrown out the ability of uh, or the relativizing uh, counting. There's in one way he's three, in one way you know yeah. he's one, and and so I think if you were to say no, there's got to be one. Like if you, it's it's going back. It's assuming ontological monism to say no. There's one thing here, and you can't relativize this speech. You yeah. can't you can't use different existential qualities quantifiers yes. it's like well that that's the debate then then you need to argue, make yeah. that argument instead of just assuming it and saying now exactly. it's a contradictory being exactly. okay yeah and that's that's my that's my main thing because i what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to take defensible metaphysics and say well let's take this defensible metaphysics in that it's not some quack wacko right. you know philosophers come up with this um but there's a defensible metaphysics here given by mcdaniel and turner there's a defensible metaphysics, not specifically from Lewis, but from McDaniel and Bricker's development of it. And let's take this and apply it here. And now, if you have a problem with the application, either you can say the application doesn't fit, or you have to take it up with the with the philosophical position. But the like I said, it's defensible. McDaniel has given counter like countless ways to defend ontological pluralism, and he's done the same thing with this modal realism. And Bricker, even more so, has done this with the modal realism as well. So if you have a problem, either you have to take it up with my own application of it in a theological right. context, or, and I, I don't see how that can be done, I don't see it as problematic, or you have to take it up with the, the, the philosophical position, which, you know, you'll have to go and then raise objections with the metaphysics itself, which is a tall task, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, a couple of things just following up. So um, yeah. we... we, we you, you made the synthesis between two conceptions, um, both of which 
seem to be motivated uh, if you are, you know, um, a, a, not classical. What's the word you use? If you're a, a traditionalist, yes, um, yeah. you you have these two more. So, so we have the synthesis here. What about the the creation problem? Do, have, yes, have we yeah, have we solved that one? Yeah, we do. So if you just go to the image, um, the one that has a red arrow, um, mm -hmm. so the one with the box and then the red arrow, that sort of, yeah, that exact one. So what we have here, because I'm taking this LRO modal realism view, I am not affirming what Lewis says, that each world is actual. Because if you have that, then it doesn't seem to be the case that God has any freedom in you know bringing about any world. Because the key thing here is that each of the infinite plurality of worlds, in general, the modal realist sort of framework, each of the plurality of worlds necessarily mm -hmm. exist. They all exist necessarily. Okay. Now, what we have there then is how does God have any freedom? How can he bring about things? Now, the creation objection was trying to say that it seems to be the case that God begins to be related to creation when he brings it about. But how can you hold to that? How can you hold to that within this sort of view, specific modal realist view? So the way that I deal with the creation objection, and I try and say, because God exists in these two ways, because God exists from the standpoint of each world, and God exists from, you know, within each world, he's imminently within each world, we have, we don't have the creation objection here, because God, in, in sort of the, the second premise, it says that God begins to be related to creation. But we don't have that, because the transcendent way of being, God is not related to creation at all because he's existing from the standpoint of creation. He doesn't bring creation into existence from that specific standpoint, from that way of being. He doesn't begin to be related. And so because in that standpoint, from that standpoint, in that way of being, that transcendent way of being, he's simple, he's immutable, impassable, and timeless. He's not related to creation in any way. So this allows us to affirm what all these you know, classical theologians were saying, we can affirm all of God being all of these things. He doesn't change. He's not related or in any way. There's no real relation from that specific standpoint, from that way of being. But because God has another way of being, because he exists within another ontological structure within each concrete world, we can have him then creating every world. But the key thing here is because each world necessarily exists, what we have is that God's creation is properly understood as his actualization of one of the worlds. Mm -hmm. So because each of the worlds necessarily exists, what the way I, because I love grounding, um, I believe that God necessarily grounds each of the worlds. So each mm -hmm. of the worlds within his imminent way of being, in each of the worlds that he exists, he grounds each of those worlds. So this world, God is grounding in this, this world in existence. But, and you have this for each of the possible worlds in which he exists within. But there is only one world, our world, which has a special category of being actual. Mm -hmm. And it is God who freely chose to actualize that world. He said, okay, uh, the way I see it is that, you know, sort of the, the picture you can have is that God is surveying, you know, all the infinite worlds and saying, which world is better, blah, blah, blah. And let's say there's a specific threshold of value. So there's some worlds where, you know, there's all these rabbits that are killing each other, you know, and everyone's mm -hmm. murdering each other. God doesn't want that world. There's another world where evil again is not really good and Hitler won World War II and God doesn't want that. And there's this world which is, you know, great, but it's not so good because there's problems here. But then there's our world, which has maybe some bad things and evil and all these things, but there's also good in our world. So it it fall, it go, it it, it passes the threshold of value. So let's say there's this threshold of value 
And I wouldn't affirm that there's a best world. So our world is not a best world because there is no best world. Sure. But let's say there's a set of worlds that pass the threshold of value. God then decides, I'm going to actualize this world. And this is how the sort of the analogy of, you know, the, the script making. So let's say you have the director having all these scripts in front of him. Okay. Let's say, you know, director of Harry Potter had all of these Harry Potter scripts in front of him. They said, ah, oh, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. I don't like that one. Okay, this one looks good. Or maybe Harry Potter's not a good one because that's a book. Okay. <laughs> so he doesn't have a lot of uh, r- r- wiggle room. Let's go with just any Inception or something. Okay. Old, sure. you know, old movie, Inception, all these different, you know, Inception sort of scripts. And then he decides to choose that one and says, you know what? I'm going to make that one into a movie and not all of these ones where the character was doing this. And that's what God did with the infinite polarity of words. All of the worlds necessarily are grounded and they exist. But there was one world that he chose to actualize, and that was our world. Mm-hmm. And so it fits again with the Plantingian view that God actualized one state of affairs. Yeah. But it allows us to say that all of these worlds necessarily exist. And so something I think was raised, um, someone, so it wasn't Joe Schmidt himself, but someone who I think I might converse with Joe Schmidt, or I don't know what, what something, but he, he said that there's a modal collapse here, or every, you know, God doesn't have free will. I think yeah, well, that, that, that's what that's kind of what I was thinking. Just real quick, like yeah. so. So it seems like these worlds might be emanations, or they yeah. exist maybe ungrounded. I'm, I'm, you're the grounding guy, right? So like, it's more like God had a choice to uh, from options instead of God had like what we think of as you know uh, creative choice. Yeah. So yeah, the way what I'm saying creation should be understood within this metaphysical framework is not the creation of a world because each world exists. They all exist. They're all there necessarily. Yeah. But yeah, what not the same way? Yeah. Yeah, they all exist necessarily. But what creation is understood, creation ex nihilo, is is not the creation of a world out of nothing, but it's the creation of a kind of world. Mm. So a world now becomes different in kind so you had all these worlds but then there's one world that now is elected and Mm -hmm. now is said this is the world and now it has a special ontological status so then what we have is that god's creative sort of agency he has free will here because he freely can choose any world that he wants to actualize Mm -hmm. yeah even though all of the worlds exist his freedom is to be understood as him him actualizing one specific world and making this world real and when I further cash this out, this view, um, without sort of the theological context, but the philosophical of it, if we have maybe the McDaniel stuff, we can have God actually, you know, the, the actualization is a, is a big move here. It's not, you know, him just saying, yeah, okay, this world, uh, come sure. on. It's no, actually vending, make- no, like a vending machine. Yeah. yeah it's not, it's right. not that. But it's actually saying this world is real. The other worlds don't have reality in the same way. Even mm-hmm. though they're there, they don't have reality in the same degree. So there's a there's something special that he does with this world. And so what this then has with the creation objection, we have God beginning to be related to a world. But it's not that he begins to be related to a world that wasn't there. The worlds are there. But he gets he's related to a, a world in a different way. When we understand it is that his real relation that he begins to have is of a kind. It's a kind relation. So he was related to this world but this world wasn't actual. They were all merely possible. Then at some point, whenever God decided to actualize one world and there was a new relation that he had, a relation to an actual world, not to a merely possible world. And so what we have here is there is a creation taking place, 
but it's a creation that we need to understand differently. And this might be difficult for people to stomach because they will be like, but we want creation really out of nothing, where there was absolutely nothing, and then there was something coming into existence. And that's a fair objection. If you want creation uh, ex nihilo understood in that way, but does it necessarily have to be understood in that way? Because, again, I think I would pull the Lewis card and say the economical value we have here, because he's all about the utility of the metaphysics. And I think we have the utility of the metaphysics here because what's more important to us, affirming the concept of God as simple as all of these things and as complex and as timeless and as temporal, all of these things we can have within this metaphysical framework. But all we have to stomach is reinterpreting creatio ex nihilo, Mm -hmm. not getting rid of it, not saying, no, there's no creatio ex nihilo, but there is a creatio ex nihilo, but we need to understand it a little bit differently, maybe weaker in the way i would say there's more virtue taking that view mm-hmm. than saying you know what we have to have these warring camps of neoclassical theists and classical yeah. theists you can't be both you have problems here and we have the theism dilemma because the scripture says this but this says this because at the end of the day the neoclassical theists will say they will laugh at the interpretations even though i affirm the classical they will laugh at the interpretations of the classical saying that's stretching it you know yeah. it's clear that the verse doesn't say that but then the classical will say, well, you know, your view is a new view. The church has always affirmed this. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to say to you is that if we take this metaphysical picture, we can have our cake and eat it. We can really have God being in these specific ways. We can have what scripture says. We can have what tradition says. And we can have it in the literal sense of the word. We don't have to reinterpret in reinterpret scripture. We don't have to reinterpret tradition. Uh, we can have Aquinas. We can have Swinburne. Yeah. <laughs> you can have both of them within this yeah. view. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> you might not be able to have Swinburne because you say God's a necessary being. And yeah. I, I don't think he says that right. But I, I, yeah. with, with, without that, so yeah, the, the, I think we're, I'm still like questioning here. What are those, what are the truths of those? I don't know if it, if you want to say truths or counterfactuals, right? It's like the the grounding objection for Molinism. What what are those possible worlds? The truths therein. What are those grounded in? Okay, what what do you mean? Sorry, just to further yeah. On. So so yeah. it seems yeah. like they it seems like they are necessarily that they're necessarily existent. What in one world, uh, you know, Parker uh, has a cat, and in another world, he has a dog. What it, I want to say, like God, you know, chose me to have a cat. First, God didn't cho- choose me to have a cat, right? Like he, but yeah. but you would say he. Well, he actuated a world in which I had a one or the other. Yeah. But there's there's like counterfactual truths in these other worlds, yeah. and it seems like they're just like they might be just free floating out there. Yeah. If they weren't up to his creative uh, yeah. activity. Yeah, but I mean, so these truths, these statements are made true by those worlds. But, and and yet, so they're grounded. The truth makers are each of the occupants of those worlds and the worlds themselves. Mm-hmm. So you having a cat in one world, you having a dog in one world. Um, but at the end of the day, the question is, do we really care about those worlds because they don't have the same status as the world that we have? And so just changing the view and going to the normal abstractionist planting a you yeah. know adam's view which a lot of people assume you have the same thing though because you have statements being made true by different state you know them 
being, I would use the word existing, but them being made true in different states of affairs. Yeah. So in one state of affairs, you have my individual essence existing where I have, you know, a dog. And in another state of affairs, I have, you know, my individual essence having, you know, a cat or whatever. And so what you have is you have those truth makers being made true by the individual essences of those entities and those different states of affairs. However, God chooses to, um, to allow one state of affairs to obtain the one where I have a dog. And so you have the same thing. Like there's yeah. no difference there because all those things are existing and made true by those states of affairs, but there's one state of affairs that obtains. Yeah. What you have in this view is you have all, yeah, you have all of the worlds existing and one of them is just actualized. Yeah. yeah. So maybe maybe my problem is with um, just a, a wrong interpretation of the abstractionist view, which, like you said, most people take for for granted, or when they learn about this, they go right to that one, yeah. which I have. And I think you know the abstract worlds, state of affairs, propositions, seem more readily like conducive to God's creative, productive activity. Like God yeah. took abstract propositions and put them all together. Or when he was thinking up possible worlds, he, they're still like the result of his, you know, creative, productive activity. It, it seemed yeah. maybe maybe push that and saying that's that's not actually what's up. And if that's the case, that's that's good. But the, on the concrete view, it seems like there's all these worlds that just they just are, and it, mm. it's not grounded in his creative activity. Yeah, but then you will have the same thing with the abstractionist view okay. because you will have all of these states of affairs, not that they're existing necessarily. And even planting in his um, small book, does God have a nature? Yeah. He would say all these abstract objects are timeless. They are, um, sorry, they're eternal. They're necessary. Mm-hmm. So given that they're eternal and necessary. So I know he takes it to be thoughts in God's mind. Mm-hmm. So that just depends how you have your, you know, how you can have, you know, yeah. abstract objects and all those sort of things. But if we just go with the general platonic view, you will have all of these necessarily existing eternal states of affairs, which are not grounded in God. They just exist as they are. Um, yeah. But then one of them obtains <clears throat> and maybe becomes concrete in some way. Um, but then again, you have an issue that I was raised by, um, raised by Lewis against Plantinga's view which I think is is has force, and it's how how do these how do these um, these abstract objects, these states of affairs, why do they represent the things that they're supposed to represent? Mm-hmm. So, and you had this view. Uh, this was also with Lewis as well. Um, this was raised planting a raise the same thing with Lewis. But how do these states of affairs work in the way that they do? Why do they represent reality in the way that they do? What's the reason that they do? Um, and it gets, I, I really don't want to go <laughs> deep. Yeah, yeah, right. It's another two hours. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it is. But there's, so the, the Lewis objection is how, you know, how does a, um, you know, how does a state of affairs, how is it related to the actual world? Mm-hmm. And it, it gets really complicated, but he's, he's like, you can get all these things working because the way our world works, you just say the other possible worlds work in that same way. Mm-hmm. They just work in the exact same way. But how do you have states of affairs doing the job that they do, that Plantinga wants them to do, to represent the way that they do and form these possible worlds? Yeah. And even how does God make them to do that? I mean, it, there's a metaphysics that needs to be there. So how yeah. does God get these things which work in some way? How do they start working in a concrete way in the way that our world does? But what you have with this view is saying we have concrete reality existing necessarily. It's there. 
But what we then have is we simply have this world having a special thing that God does to it. Mm-hmm. He does a new act that he didn't do. It wasn't having, you know, wasn't there before. But, and um, again, this is a, this is a new view because the main people who are working on theistic modal realism, they assume Lewis's view. And right. so they stomach the view that God doesn't have free will because God necessarily brings about all of these possible worlds and mm-hmm. each of them are actual. What I'm trying to say is that we can have some form of free will because at the end of the day, God doesn't have free will like us. So Amen. God has yeah. limited, uh, uh, I mean, we have free will because we can choose between good and bad. God sure. can't, you can only choose good. So we have a limitation to God's free will anyway. We have mm-hmm. a qualification of it. So there's an even further qualification here that God does have free will, but what his freedom does when it comes to creative sense is actualization and not bringing about of a possible world. Yeah, and uh, you have a range of good worlds uh, that, that he could pick from because uh, best possible worlds yes. uh, yeah. conceptually impossible exactly, yeah and yeah just the last thing on this and this view as well is more helpful because how do you have god being related to these abstract objects because at the end of the day god didn't bring them into existence so how is there a grounding relation because grounding hmm. is the relation of metaphysical causation um the way i interpret it and the way some philosophers interpret it but these re- these abstract objects are causally inert so they can't be in any grounding relation with god so they're just these free-floating things Wait, wait. They they don't. If if you're like a a, a modified theistic activist, you'd say yeah. God did bring these things about, but they don't have causal powers. The causal powers are grounded in an agent, and so he can, yes. right? So they they don't need causal powers in in and of themselves. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I mean, there'll be ways to ways okay, to okay. modify it and ways to do this, but I I would again want to understand the, the causal relation better between these things. Sure. sure. So is it causation in the way that we understand it um can causation have as relative you know these types of objects i will want to know that but what i'm trying to say is that at the face value we can we can have causation and we don't have to reinterpret it because my problem i have a lot of the time with theology and philosophy is that we have to always reinterpret things to fit into our box right but what we can have here is causation because God grounds each of these worlds because each of these worlds can be, you know, the inputs or the outputs of these types of things because they're concrete. But can we necessarily have that with these abstract objects? That's a question that we need to see and we need to understand the relation better. And so we can have causation. We can have grounding here. Each world is grounded by God. God is the source of each world. He's the necessary eternal source because they didn't come to existence, but he's still the fundamental ground of each world. But he also has some counterfactual freedom because what he does is that he decides to bring about one world in an actualization move, which also Plantinga would say is what God does. He actualizes a world. I say the same thing here. Yeah, dude, that's great because you've I think you've set up a really important uh, and potentially illuminating debate between abstractionist concerning possible worlds, theistic abstractionist and theistic concretist like yourself, which you may be. Uh, yeah. uh, the only the singleton set is you, <laughs> you know, like what well, it might just be you out here right now, but maybe yeah, sure. people listening that could be really that's really interesting because you want to push them and say, Look, I think usually they say, Look, God's uh, immaterial, and like you just kind of slap it there and it just kind of intuitively, but you, yes. you don't really cash it out. And you're saying, Look, I have one that is further developed, so now yeah. it's back on you guys to make sense of it. I think yes. that's a that's a great point, man. That's really really helpful. I think uh, in moving the conversation forward, that yeah, maybe I, people didn't even realize needed to be. Yes. Yeah. No. No. I do do appreciate that. And yeah, just to yeah, just to emphasize the point is, 
Um, what I'm trying to do is just take what is available yeah. and what's defensible. So not just what's available, what's available and defensible and say, actually, there can be fruit, you know, had here when it comes to theology. And so, you know, we can have a little bit more peace between a classical theist and a neoclassical theist because you can be both. You yeah. just need to, you know, be able to also assume this ontology and metaphysics and maybe it's possible to do that. And yeah, that's that's sort of my aim. Wow, man. We, well, we, we, we went in deep and far. Yeah. This is awesome. I think there's, there's still tons more. I, I think there's like, if you're a semantic externalist, you might have a problem with an, an, a, like your concepts referring to other things, but most people aren't. So there's, there's that, but yeah. I think the, the authorial, what you're doing, I want to, I want to read more and I want to connect with the authorial analogy. Cause I think it, it fits really nicely in saying there's God, the author outside the text and God who yeah. represents himself well, but inside the text and he can have genuine relations and, I think it's cool. I think it's actually biblical. I, so um, going from the theological and the metaphysics and like, just, I want to talk more about this, man. I, yes. I, I really appreciate the work you're doing. And uh, you. even though it blows my mind every single time, I got to listen back like three oh. times to this. <laughs> no, thank you. And you're, you're an amazing host. So really bring out the best in your, your guests. So thanks, man. yeah, thanks. I really, really do appreciate it. And thanks so much for having me on again. I yeah. So I, I, well, dude, I appreciate all your time. I will link to your paper. Um, where's the best place people can, can read more of your work though? Yeah. So, um, I mean, all my stuff is on academia. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that one, (laughs) you can get thousands of emails. So I do apologize if you have to download it and get those things. Um, but I, yeah, I do upload most things on there, uh, when I have a copy or pre-pub or something like that. So yeah, people can go on there or you can always reach me on, on Facebook. I'm always willing to to have a conversation with people. Um, but yeah, yeah, just, um, yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, definitely, man. And uh, if you guys want to have more conversations with myself and my guests, check out the Facebook group, Parker's Pensies Ponceurs. Um, uh, find us there. I'll let you in, all that good stuff. So that'll be fun. Josh, thanks again, man. This has been huge. I got to go take a nap or something. This yeah. is, uh, <laughs> Everyone does, I think. But uh, that, that's going to have to do it for now, folks. Uh, thanks for for tuning in. If you, Again, if you want to support me, you can support me on Patreon. You can find a link in the description. And uh, buy a shirt. And go to uh, Biblios, Biblios or Biblios Clothing, and uh, you can get that 10% discount. Get an awesome shirt like this one. All right. That's going to have to do it. Peace.